اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم من یطع الرسول فقد اتا الله ومن تولى فما ارسلناك عليهم حفیظا This ayah the shana nuzul of this ayah was that there was some this is surah an-nisa surah number 4 verse number 80 there were some munafiqeen who had raised a subjection against the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that nabi akram sallam and allah subhanahu wa quran and nabi akram sallam were frequently mentioning how important it is to obey the prophet sallam and to love the prophet sallam and meanwhile quran akram and nabi akram sallam had mentioned that the Christians were wrong and that they took Isa alayhi salam to be a son of God and the Christians were wrong that they worshipped Isa alayhi salam. So the munafikun were always looking for ways to try to point out or suggest rather, to suggest and insinuate that there was some type of contradiction in what the Prophet was saying or what the Quran was saying. So they tried to pick on this point and they suggested that on the one hand, Islam is saying that don't, overly obey and love Isa salam such that you make him an object of worship and on the other hand the prophet salam is saying and the quran is saying that you should love and obey sayyidina rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so they tried to suggest through their twisted mind and perverted insinuation that these were somehow similar things so in response to this allah subhanahu wa revealed this ayah man yuti'ir rasul faqad ata allah that know that each and every person who obeys the Prophet ﷺ, it is in fact tantamount to and equivalent to them obeying Allah SWT. So obedience to the Prophet ﷺ has the authority behind it from Allah SWT. What does it mean? Allah Ta'ala is saying in His Qur'an that the Prophet ﷺ is not saying this of His own accord that you should obey Him. Allah SWT is revealing to Him these injunctions, that hikmah, those ta'limat of kitab and those ta'limat of hikmah, on the basis of which you have to obey him. وَمَن And that whomsoever turns their back on this obedience of the Prophet ﷺ, Indeed, we have not sent you as a ward or as a guard unto them. Okay, there are other ayat that talk about this issue. If you look at Surah number 33, verse 21, there is mention, and okay, the first Surah number, Surah Al-Imran, verse 31, That is something that we did already, and that was, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تَحْبُونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ So I'd explain that to you earlier. Another ayah that one should look at in light of this one is Surah number 33, verse number 21. لَكَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رُسُولُ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا that indeed you have for you, in the example of the Prophet ﷺ, a perfect, noble, ideal form. No need to, don't need to scan there. Second surah that you can look at is surah number 7, 157, and uh, verse number 157. And that, in that, Allah ﷻ says that whatever the Prophet ﷺ has told you to do, that you should grab it. And whatever he has forbidden you from doing, you should stay away from it. So these three, four ayat, basically these four ayat that we've mentioned, in other words, surah number 4, verse number 80, what we're doing today, surah number 33, verse 21, surah number 7, verse 157, and surah number 3, verse 31, established all the relationships and used these words for the Prophet ﷺ. The first word that covers our relationship with the Prophet ﷺ is iman, that we have to believe in him. Second word that covers our relationship with him is ita'ah, that we have to obey him. Third word that covers our relationship with them is ittiba, which means we should follow him. Now sometimes people wonder, what is the difference between ita'a and ittiba? Ita'a means to obey. And ittiba means to follow willingly. 
Itaat means that obey your professor. Ittiba means get an A plus in the class. Right? So ittiba means to follow each and every aspect of his being, of his adab, of his akhlaq, of his teaching. And fourth, and maybe the most important word is muhabba, that we should have love for Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam. So iman, obedience, following, and love. This is how Allah Ta'ala has mentioned the ummati-nabi relationship. The nabi-ummati relationship was tilawati ayat, ta'lim al-kitab, or tilawati ayat, tazkiyah, ta'lim al-kitab, and ta'lim al-hikmah. And the ummati-nabi relationship is iman, ita'a, ittiba, and muhabba. The second part of the ayah, when Allah says, we have not sent you as a ward and as a guard, Mufti Ashik has mentioned in his tafsir that this is suggesting that one can ignore the kuffar, can, anybody who disbelieves in Islam can be ignored. We have not sent you as a hafiz, means not as a warden, not as a guard, not as a prosecutor, means that basically, you know, it's, they are those unbelievers who are engaging, and it's coming in a, a little bit, Again, and it's come before, those unbelievers who are perpetrating injustice and aggression, then you must fight them with a like amount of aggression until they cede their aggression and until they cede their fitna. But there's another option, another relationship. And this is what the Ishara hears in Quran, that those unbelievers who are not fighting you and not being aggression and not having an injustice, then for those unbelievers are this and other similar ayat, that Allah Ta'ala is telling the Prophet that you are not been sent as a warden or a guardian or a protector. You simply just have to give them the message. It's up to them they accept or not. So if they don't accept, but they don't do fitna, don't do aggression, there's a live and let live relationship. It's coming at the end of Quran, Dukum dinukum waliyadeen, then it's fine. It's fine. No need. Right? And that's what it means, la ikraha fiddeen, that there's no compulsion in the deen of Islam. So this we had covered that uh, so the munafikun, this ayat is about a, mentioning a bad practice you can say of the hypocrites. What do they say? Ta'atun, ta'atun, that we obey, we obey. Obedience lies upon us, obedience is incumbent upon us. فَإِذَا بَرَزُوا مِنْ indik, When they leave your presence, when they turn away and leave your presence, then what they do, بَيَّتَ So a faction of them conspires in the night. And what do they do? They conspire and they commit to those things that are other than what you said. In other words, they basically go against your teachings. It's rubbed to the previous ayah that when they're with you, they pretend that we will obey your commandments and teachings. But at night, then they conspire to do the very thing against that or they discuss with one another how they're going to disobey the Prophet Wallahu yaktubu ma yubayyitun. And Allah subhanahu is writing and keeping a written record and keeping track of each and everything that they conspire about at night. Fa'arid anhum. Turn away from them. Don't pay any attention to them. Wa tawakkal Allah. And you should have your trust and reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wa kafa And surely Allah subhanahu is sufficient for a trustee and as a guardian and a caretaker. Afala yatatabbaroon al Quran. Alright, so this is a verse that Allah Ta'ala is addressing to munafikin. And I've told you that when it comes in the Quran, I've been showing you every time it comes. Tafakkur, tadabbur, ta'akkul, using your intellect, using your reflection power. This is to contemplate and ponder over. You have to understand that who is that being addressed to? And for what purpose? So believers are not being told to do tadabbur on the Quran. 
munafiqeen are told to do tadabbur on Qur'an. So what does tadabbur mean? That do not ponder and reflect and consider certain miraculous features of the Qur'an that would make you realize that the Qur'an is indeed kalamullah and would make you realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala truly exists. And that realization is not going to teach you the details of Islam. It's not going to teach you the theological intricacies or spiritual wonders or legal details of Islam. That tadabbur is just going to bring you to very iman itself. Alright? The act of tadabbur is something that can bring a munafik to iman. And that's what Allah subhanahu That were this book to have been from any being other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you would have found much contradiction, much discrepancy in it. So here it's talking maybe about the literary style of the Qur'an, the content of the Qur'an, right? It's not so, in other words, tadabbur can just enable you to see that there's no contradiction. It doesn't enable you, it's not tafsir, it's not deep meanings, it's not ma'arif, it's not nukat. And again, tadabbur is something that a munafik is being asked to do. Alright. وَإِذَا جَاءَهُمْ أَمْرٌ So next, I, I mention this because you know sometimes, especially in certain secular progressive circles, they like to talk about contested authority and who has the authority to interpret the Qur'an. And they write articles and books about this where they suggest that the ulama have hijacked the Qur'an or trying to perpetrate and perpetuate rather a monopoly of authority on Qur'anic interpretation. That is like me telling you that the physicists who are faculty members in physics departments of the world have hijacked physics and they're trying to perpetuate their authority over this discipline. You would look at me, you would say that's such a nonsensical thing to say. You say, of course they are the only ones who engage in research into physics because they are physicists. So you have to understand the ulama have not prevented anyone from learning this, right? Just like no university has any discrimination, anybody who wants and who meets the standard of admission can enroll and study an undergrad degree in physics three to four years and then do a PhD in physics four to six years after that. Just like that, anybody who wants to understand tafsir of Qur'an, they can embark on an eight, ten, twelve year course of study. So the ulama are not trying to keep people away from that. They're just trying to suggest, as is the case in every single scholastic endeavor, discipline of learning, every single deep text that is studied, that it's a certain level of erudition and scholarship that we require to comment on it. In England, for example, in Oxford and Cambridge, to be a Shakespearean scholar, which means to be a scholar who can comment and comment and write on, on the works, plays and poems and sonnets of Shakespeare requires years of study. Right? Years of study. Now, if I was to say that these Shakespearean scholars have tried to put a monopoly on Shakespeare, they'll say no. They'll say, look, there's different levels. One level is just reading Shakespeare for the fun of it. So there is a certain level of engagement in Qur'an. Number one level is called Tilawat of the Arabic. That is available to everyone. Number two is the basic understanding. That's what I'm communicating, trying to communicate to you in, with, the, with the help of Allah SWT, inshallah, in these type of gatherings. Right? And that refers to the basic hidayah, the basic guidance that the Qur'an contains. But as far as detailed interpretation and derivation of legal rulings and ahkam, that's not at all being referred to in tadabbur, and that is not something other than a scholarly person can do. So yes, we need more women scholars of Qur'an. Yes, we need more scholars from this socioeconomic background. That may be a problem. That's society's collective fault. That's not the fault of the ulama. 
that this segment of society doesn't send their children to the madrasas. They prefer to send their children to do degrees in economics and finance and medicine, right? That's your fault, right? As far as the ulama are concerned, actually the A student in O levels should immediately be taken out and sent to the madrasa. And like the B1 maybe could go to Lums, and the C1 could show up at LSE, <laughs> right? But it's like the other way around, right? The A1 is going to go to Harvard, and the A-1 is going to show up at Lums, and the D1, when they, no one's willing to take him, the parents would think, Chalo isko molvi right? So that was a sin of the parents. That's not what Islam wants in any way, Right? But the counter to that doesn't mean that people who have Western education, right, become self-styled experts in Qur'an when they have not given the Qur'an its due. Who is a mufassir? A mufassir is that person who spent as much time with Qur'an as a physicist has spent time studying physics. As much as an economist has spent time studying economics. So what is that? So that's A-level economics, that's BS economics, that's mashallah PhD economics. And even after that, they have to do a postdoc and do research and write journal articles, right? And even then, they're just an assistant professor. So if you want to be just an assistant mufassir, right? Assistant mufassir. You should go through 10 years and publish a couple of articles. And then after five years teaching tafsir and publishing a few research pieces, we can make you associate mufassir. And later on, to become full mufassir, you should have 10, 15 years of teaching it and writing it and publishing on it, Right? So this tadabur is not in any way inviting people to become mufassir. It's inviting munafiqeen that just reflect overall on the mu'jaza, on the miracle that is Qur'an. Right? And it's not in any way to exclude anyone. If it was up to me, all of you would drop out from all the universities you study and all become mufassir. But it's not up to me, it's up to you. <laughs> it's not up to me, it's up to you. Right? Jacqueline. Akhir, some of your parents may be upstairs, right? So they say if all our kids drop out and become a fusser, then who will be left to be the engineers and the doctors? Right? What can we do? All right. Next ayat, which is ayat number 83. Yeah, ayat number 83. Allah Spanta is mentioning something else. Another attribute of the munafikun. وَإِذَا جَاءُهُمْ أَمْرٌ that one, it comes to them, means comes to their knowledge and awareness, amrun, news of some matter. Them here means again the munafikun. Min al-amni awil khawfi. Literally means in, in, in states of safety or fear can also mean the states of peace and war. bihi That they spread it, they broadcast it. minhum. That if instead were they have to refer, were they were they had to refer that matter to the Prophet ﷺ or those who had some authority from amongst them, minhum, that those, the matter would have been known and ascertained and understood and investigated by those who were people of insight from amongst them. All right. There, Mufassirin have mentioned several different occasions that perhaps is why and when this verse was initially revealed. First thing is that... Uh, it's a general teaching. First, let's take the lesson out from this. Is that whenever you hear anything, you shouldn't take rumors or hearsay on face value. And you should certainly not repeat and broadcast those rumors and hearsay to other people. Instead, what you should do is refer it to those who know better. And when it's something about deen, obviously refer to the Prophet ﷺ if you were alive at that time. 
right? Or refer to the Ulul Amri Minhum. So here it can be an ishara that in later times refer to those who have authority. Whatever that matter may be. Right? If it's a matter concerning, so if you hear some random rumor, which is false, right? That some people think that polio vaccine actually has some type of pork ingredient in it and it's all conspiracy to hurt the Muslims. So you should refer to doctors and doctors will tell you that there's no such thing. There's no truth in it. So you have to refer to experts in the field. Right? All right, there's a hadith in Sahih Muslim that Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi sallam, and, and the, the hadith in Muslim says that this is the original occasion of the revelation of this verse, occasion of revelation of what we call Sha'n in Nazul, that Sayyidina Rasulullah sallam had separated himself from the Ummahatul Mu'mineen for some reason, for some period of time. And people somehow came to find out about that. So what the Munafiqoon did in order to hurt the hearts of the Sahaba, in order to cast an aspersion on the character of Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam, what did they do? They started running around and telling people that the Prophet has divorced all of his wives. Right? Which would be the act of anger or something like that. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, because his daughter was also one of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, Sayyidina Hafsa radiallahu ta'ala anha. So he was concerned, so he went to the Prophet and asked him, and the Prophet said, there's no such matter like that. So then he asked the Prophet do I have your permission to clarify this publicly, because a lot of confusion has been spread by certain people. So the Prophet gave him permission, and then in Masjid Nabi he made a public announcement and proclamation that no such thing has taken place, and this ayah was revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then that is also what thing that I've mentioned to you before, the Muafiqati Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Alright, but it contains a general lesson. Next part of this ayah, وَلَوْ لَا فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ لَتَّبَعْتُمُ الشَّيْطَانِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Alright, what does this mean? Number one, it means actually that if the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wasn't there for you, what is that fuzzle? So the Mufassirin have mentioned that this is primarily means Qur'an and the Prophet As if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not, so the first way to undertake this, it still means all of humanity. That if it was not for Allah Ta'ala sending His scriptures and His prophets, and if it was not for Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala sending the Qur'an and saying that Rasulullah Wasallam, then all of you, and Allah, so this is Allah Ta'ala's Fazl and His mercy, and if it wasn't for Allah Ta'ala's mercy that He chose to make you guided by the Qur'an and Sunnah, then all of you would have ended up following shaitan, all of you humanity would have ended up following shaitan, illa kalila except a few. Right? So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making it clear how much humanity needs Qur'an and Sunnah. How much humanity is dependent on Qur'an and Sunnah. Who are those Khalil? Khalil is referring to those people who are Hanif. Those few people who have such a fitrat salim that even before or even if scriptures and prophets were not available to them, they would have still been on tawheed, they would have still been on belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And some, some commenters give the example of the monk Waraka bin Nawfal, right? And this is, that is another story, but it was a monk who had received some foreshadowing and understood and recognized the signs of the Prophet ﷺ. But he was at that moment still on tawheed. He hadn't fallen into the shirk or kufr or fallen into any type of concept of trinity. And how did he do that? He maintained himself like that because he was Hanif. So it suggests that there are going to be a few, there are a few special souls in humanity whose intrinsic souls are so pure, right, that even without 
scriptures and prophets, they would have at least remained on iman in Allah SWT. They wouldn't have known how to do ibadah or how to fast. Or they, even they need to be guided by Quran and Sunnah, but at least they would have that. All right. This is what sometimes in Urdu you say, nek ru and nek tabiyat and things like that. Okay. Now we're going to be doing some ahkam of uh, Allah SWT is going to discuss again some ahkam of jihad. These should be understood in light of and in context of and against the background and backdrop of everything that we had done earlier in Surah Baqarah. So this is now verse number 84 on. So here again, this is the last rubbed with the previous is that now Allah Ta'ala is saying that, O Prophet ﷺ, even if these munafiqeen leave you, even if they desert, even if they don't go out for war, even if they say these things, you must still fight the unjust aggressor in the path of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. La tukallafu illa, that you are not responsible illa nafsaka, you are not responsible except for your own self. Wahadil mu'mineen, and you must rouse or persuade or do targheeb to the mu'mineen, to the believers. Asallahu ayn yakuffa ba'salladheena kafaru. And indeed, surely it is possible that soon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may curb and more ward off and may stem the evil mischief of those who disbelieve. Alright, what does it mean, wahadil mu'mineen? Here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, first of all, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to the Prophet that la tukallafu illa nafsak, that you are not responsible except for your own self. Means that those people who don't go forth, like those 300 who didn't go for Uhud, that we did a few days ago, you won't be responsible for them. Hadad al-Mu'mineen is not suggesting that necessarily any Mu'mineen would not go forth. What it means is that, you see, it was not distinguished who were the Munafikin and Mu'mineen at this point outwardly. Even though Sayyidina Rasulullah may have been given that knowledge. And certainly those 300 through their act of desertion distinguished themselves. But the Prophet should still continue to address everyone, right? And invite them or do targheeb or, you know, uh, coax them and persuade them to go and fight the unjust aggressor for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And indeed, however many will listen, right? That will be sufficient for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to ward off those who disbelieve. Wallahu ashaddu ba'sa. So if you look up, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use the same word. Here, ashaddu ba'sa means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the, literally means most severe in inflicting harm. So above it said that Allah Ta'ala can stem and curb and stop the unbelievers from inflicting their harm. Here it means Allah Ta'ala is most severe in inflicting harm. But what it really means is ashaddu ba'sa, it means that no one can be victorious against Allah. There is no force that can be victorious against Allah Ta'ala. Wa ashaddu tankila. Here it literally means that uh, Allah Ta'ala is the most firm and severe in inflicting punishment, but what it means again here is that no one can stem the punishment, nobody can turn away the tide of the punishment of Allah. Allah SWT can curb and stem and ward off their mischief, right? They will not be able to stem and ward off the punishment of Allah SWT when it comes. Alright. Next ayah is talking about shifa. Alright. مَنْ يَشْفَ شَفَاءَةً hasana. Alright. يَكُلَّهُ نَسِيبٌ مِّنْهَا وَمَنْ يَشْفَ شَفَاءَةً سَيِّئَةً يَكُلَّهُ كِفْلٌ مِّنْهَا So two types of shafa'ah are being mentioned over here. Okay, shafa'ah literally means an intercession. Right? So your translation has it here as whosoever makes a good recommendation. Right? 
can also be read as whosoever makes a worthy intercession will receive a share of it, and whoever makes an evil intercession will receive the sin for it. Okay, the word is different in Kiflon, will receive the sin for it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has power over all things. Alright. Here Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu in a hadith and Sahih Bukhari has mentioned that a person should do shifa and the word is intercede and you will be rewarded. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees what he wills on the tongue of his messenger. This means that whatever intercession is brought to the Prophet ﷺ, this is not, don't, maybe you're thinking shifa, doesn't mean the intercession that they have judgment. By here it means intercede by making some type of recommendation or suggestion or consultation, right? Okay, this is what it's talking about. That person who is a good intention and makes a good advice as opposed to that person who has a bad intention and makes a bad advice. Okay. This can also be termed sometimes by some of you in Urdu. Another meaning that has been taken from this is what they call Sephardish. What does that mean? That again, you make a suggestion or you try to intercede. You plead the case of someone. You plead the case of someone, right? This happens a lot, for example, in hiring. So the Islamic rulings on this is that number one, you cannot plead the case of someone to, you cannot plead the case or application of someone who is trying to entitle themselves to something that is not their right. So let's say somebody does not have a right to do something. Let's say even if it's such a noble thing that somebody wants to build a masjid, but they want to build it on a park, I would love to do it. But we can't do it, right? Because the parks and horticulture authorities are standing in our way. So if somebody was to plead our case, it would not be jais and shriya to do that, right? That's a separate thing to make a policy decision, but without the proper channels to bypass the proper channels and get somebody to plead on your behalf that you're usurping the right of someone else, that is not a jais way to plead. Second, if somebody is pleading your case for employment and that person is not qualified for that job, then that's also not jais. So even if you're your beloved nephew, but you plead their case with somebody that give him this particular position for which that nephew is not qualified, that is not permissible. However, if that nephew meets the merit criteria, and let's say that post had received three applications who were all equal on the basis of merit, then that means, by definition when I say, Apparently, I mean, you can never, obviously everybody's merit is different, but as far as paper qualifications go, as far as interviews and assessment go, all three candidates are equal in terms of merit, but there's only one position, right? So that means by definition now, that position will be decided on a non-merit basis, because you have three who are equal on merit. In that situation, then you can do this type of shafat, you can do this type of intercession on that basis, then a person may decide, Literally on this, said, okay, he's my friend's nephew, right? There may be other considerations that a person may use, but that is permissible in Sharia. What is preferable at that moment? Obviously, there may be considerations of deen, right? 
that maybe this person is more honest, more pious, more muttaki, more muttabi, sunnah, would be able to, because of these qualities, perhaps function better. But it is permissible to decide on the basis of some type of sifarish, as you say, when merit and rights are being fulfilled and not being violated or compromised in any way whatsoever. Right? Okay. What is not allowed also, something that happens is bribes. Bribes will not be allowed here. So this second part of the ayah, وَمَنْ يَشْفَ شَفَاءَةً So the first part was, uh, the first part was, مَنْ يَشْفَ شَفَاءَةً حَسَنَةً That person who pleads a good case, makes a good suggestion, intercedes in a noble way for the purpose of nobility and excellence, يُكُنْ لَهُ نَسِيبٌ مِنْهَا That they will get some share in the reward for that means it's viewed as a good deed. وَمَنْ يَشْفَ شَفَاءَةً سَيِّئَةً So this could, this is referring to the evil request, evil pleading, evil interceding, and this could include bribery as well. This could include bribery as well. يُكُنْ لَهُ كِفْلٌ مِنْهَا That that person will get a sin by means of that from that which they intercede. And indeed Allah tells powerful over all things. Next ayah is ayah number 85, and this is going to be, sorry, this was ayah number 85. Next ayah is ayah number 86. This is going to talk about the importance of salam. وَإِذَا هُيِّتُمْ بِتَهِيَّةٍ فَحَيُّوا بِأَحْسَنَ مِنْهَا أَوْ رُدُّوهَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَسِيبًا Okay. Tahiyya and this, all of these words are coming from the same source, ha, ya, ya. And when you make it from Babi Tafa'ul, tahiyya, so tahiyya means greeting. And interestingly, this is also a word that has to do, is related to the root word that is used for life. Okay? So tahiyya, in English they call it greeting, but really in, in Arabic sense is much more than that. Maybe in English word would be salutation, or really even prayer, even a dua. Even really it means to greet someone with prayer, salutary prayers. Maybe the more fancy, although it's a bit archaic English to use as opposed to just a greeting. So the translation here is, وَإِذَا هُيِّتُمْ When you are greeted with a salutary prayer, بِتَهِيَّةٍ With any form of greeting or salutary greeting, then what you do, فَحَيُّ You should reply, بِأَحْسَنَ minha With a greeting that is better than that, Oh. Or at the very least, ruduha, then you should return the same. And the very famous hadith that the Nabiya Karim Sallallahu has taught us is that if a person says, As-salamu alaykum to you, you should either say, Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullah, that's more, that's asan, or at least say, Wa alaykum as-salam, you shouldn't say, Wa alaykum, and you should definitely not say, Wa alaykum. Right? And if a person says to you, As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi, so you should say back against him, Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Or at least say, Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullah. Now why am I saying this? It's amazing that some people in, again, this culture, uh, who were in this unfortunate, and I want to make clear when I make these comments, I'm not saying it to chastise them. I'm saying it out of deep sorrow and grief over the fact that they've become so distant from their deen. And we say it with hope and love and compassion that Allah Ta'ala bring them back and bring them closer to deen. But even these words of greetings are foreign. 
And even when somebody says that, they get upset. Really. So when somebody says, Salaam alaykum, beta, and if you say it to them, Wa alaykum as salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and they're like, yeah, Malvi ban gaya. Right? Yeah, apna Malviyat ko kaise dekhan. Right? What is this person trying to do? They view it as, a, oh, they view it just, and what did you actually do? You actually wished upon them, the, and they even know enough Urdu to understand that Arabic. All you did was say two words. You said, and the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It shows some, you know, it shows the unfortunate, very sad, tragic distance. Not to be mocked or jested, but to be cried over. Right? The people don't know. Right? What they're actually missing out on, what they're saying. And that's why I was telling you not to call it a greeting. These are du'as. Our deen has taught us to greet one another with du'a. You know, when people Urdu, when they part, they say merely du'a karna. Deen is saying when you meet, ek dusrikle du'a karta. This assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh is a du'a. That a person says at the very beginning. So next time you say that with dua, I mean, it's dua to hoge. Min dua kar liye apne. They say, what do you mean? They say, minute salam kata. Right? So this is teaching of Quran. Now, why did Allah Subhanahu wa Taala want this? Obviously, it's in Quran. It's a very deep, powerful teaching. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala wants this because He wants to increase our love with one another. Second, Allah Ta'ala wanted us because He wanted us to always remind that when we meet one another, we are meeting one another as fellow believers and servants and slaves. Therefore, the tadhkira, the mention of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala should come. Third reason is that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala want to distinguish the greetings of Muslims. Now, sometimes people have asked me this question that there's a Christian staff member, Christian household staff, or Christian nurse, or a Christian doctor, something like, right? Uh, Christian boss. And they say, Assalamu Alaikum to me, because it's a cultural thing now in Pakistan. It's just the cultural, it's almost like an Urdu equivalent of hello. Although it's Arabic, although it's a dua, but it's being said, can I say Wa Alaikum Assalam to them? Now, in the time of the Prophet it was very clear that you should not respond with that greeting that Allah Ta'ala has made something, special dua between fellow believers, right? To that person who doesn't believe in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala or believe in the Prophet right? Then people say that, well, you know, but it would be very awkward, and if I don't say it, right, if I don't say wa alaykum as-salam to them, it's awkward. Okay. I accept that, that in terms of, you're right, that the emotional feeling would be awkward. But it should also be awkward to you that you're looking at somebody who is living in a Muslim society. So one is those disbelievers who don't know about Islam, right? That's, we can talk about that. One is that disbeliever who knows Islam is living right in the middle of Islam. Even if no matter how many people in the society are non-practicing, there are enough people in Pakistan that are practicing Islam that the hujjat of believing in Islam for anyone in Pakistan is complete. There's no excuse, no ignorance, right? Somebody in the middle of Nebraska can say the only thing I knew about Islam was what the New York Times said or not even but Fox News says it was terrorism, right? Nobody in Pakistan can say that. So you should find that awkward that's more awkward that this person doesn't believe in Sayyidina Rasulullah right? That should feel more awkward to you than this little awkward thing. At most, the ulama have said that, okay, you can say wa alaykum, but you can't say the word as-salam. Right? You can say wa alaykum, but you can't say as-salam or certainly not wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can you make dua? Some people say, but why if it's a dua? Why can't we make du'a for... You can make du'a for a non-Muslim. You should make du'a for a non-Muslim. But the du'a is du'a of hidayah. Du'a is hidayah. If you want, you could say, Wa alaykum wa hidayatullahi alaykum. 
And they may not know. They may think you give them a zabardast arbi jawab. Right? You can say that to them. No problem. But the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes on those who want to attract His mercy through iman. And the barakat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala come for those persons who want to attract His barakat. So you can make dua. Right? Some people say that no, this is nitpicking and they can chorti jizu me jani ki Allah ta'ala bari rahim Okay? Look, Allah ta'ala is telling you, Allah is big Allah. Allah is al-adheem al-kabir. He's telling you in Quran how to respond to one another. He told us about that, right? That when somebody greets you, respond likewise or respond better. So the small things do matter. This is an English proverb. Even a proverb's aphorisms are those nuggets of wisdom that people realized are universal truths. And one such thing like that in English is that small things matter. Small things matter. All right? So they do matter. They matter to Allah They matter to one another. Sometimes you do something small for someone and it wins over their heart, right? Sometimes you fail to do something small. You slip in a small way. You forget one small thing and you lose their heart, right? So Allah Ta'ala has made it in such a way that small things matter. All right. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has been and will continue to be taking each and everything to account. So it means the rubbed here is the way you greet and the way you respond to greetings is being taken into account by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This exactly sifat that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned that he's asib over this means that small things definitely count. It count in the record of Allah. <laughs> that means it should count for us. Because we're Abdullah. All right. Allahu la ilaha illahu. So here we're now moving to verse number uh, 87. Here are lots of rulings concerning salam. Uh, maybe I will just mention one or two of them right now. That when you enter into a gathering, if there's a discussion going on, it's actually khilafi adab to say salam. For example, some man was to walk in right now, he's not supposed to say assalamu alaikum to me or anybody else here. Because that is disrupting the gathering, right? And that, because that's not a mulaqat. He's just coming to sit, right? Second, if a person is engaged in ibadah, you should not say salam to them. So somebody sitting and reading tilaw, doing tilaw to Quran, you shouldn't say salam. You can sit down next to them. They will notice your presence due to their peripheral vision. When they interrupt or pause the reading of Quran, then you say salam to them, right? Okay. And so there are many, many such things like that. Shaykh Ashraf Ali in one of his books called Hayatul Muslimin, which is available in English as well, has written a whole chapter on all the intricate adab and etiquettes of giving and receiving salam. Alright, verse number 87. Allah says in Quran Kareem that there is no being worthy of worship, no God, no deity, no divinity, illahu, except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala surely and certainly He will gather each and every one of you onto that day of judgment about which there is no doubt whatsoever that that day will take place. وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُوا And that, وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُوا مِنَ اللَّهِ حَدِيثًا And who is there who is more true than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He relates a narrative or relates a piece of information or relates an event or even hadith can be used just to mean to speak. So it means that what, what truer kalam can there be than the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Alright. fil munafiqeen. So now we move to verses number 87 to 90, or 88 to 91. Here Allah subhanahu 
Okay. فَمَالَكُمْ فِي الْمُنَافِقِينَ فِعَتَيْنِ وَاللَّهُ أَرْكَسُهُمْ بِمَا كَسَبُوا That what is there that you have split into fi'atain, you have split into two groups due to or concerning, concerning or regarding the hypocrites. It can also mean due to the hypocrites, but it can also be concerning and regarding the hypocrites. وَاللَّهُ أَرْكَسُهُمْ بِمَا كَسَبُوا And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had done what? Arkasahum Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had slammed them down. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had cast them behind. Allah ta'ala had given them a lower rank. Bimaqasabu by means of what they used to do. Or you can say what they used to earn by means of what they used to do. Aturiduna antahdu man That is it your wish or your intent or your hope that you will guide that person whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala misguides? Now this is something I've meant, but let me finish it. وَمَنْ يُدْلِلَّهُ فَلَنْ تَجَدَلْهُ سَبِيلًا And that person whom Allah subhanahu wa has caused to go astray, then you will never ever be able to find any way to bring that person back or to find a way to link that person to Allah. What does it mean? Allah subhanahu wa does not cast a person astray originally. But if a person persists in disbelief, then persists in nifaq, then does all of the things that we've, Allah Ta'ala has mentioned so far that the munafikun are doing, so they lie, they spread slander and rumors, they pretend to obey the Prophet, but at night they plan how they're going to disobey him, right? Etc, etc, etc. When a person does all of that, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then pulls the plug on hidayah from them. They are plugged in also. Allah Ta'ala is broadcasting their hidayah to them. But if they keep refusing, keep refusing, keep plotting, keep machinating, Allah Ta'ala pulls the plug on them. When the plug is pulled, now they're astray. And now Allah Ta'ala is saying, so if I use that metaphor, that once Allah Ta'ala pulls the plug on someone, there is no outlet you will ever find that will be willing to take that plug. So you're thinking that you may be able to guide them, that's never going to be able to happen. What do? And this may be saying that Allah love and mercy, that he thought that, okay, the 300 of them didn't come to Uhud, I can still try on them, Right? What do Lautakfuruna Kama Kafaru and what they love and what they yearn is that you should disbelieve the way they disbelieve. Fatakununa Sawa'an and that you should be equal with them. You and them should be the same means in terms of their disbelief. And you should not take from them awliya. And we've done this before. You should not take from them dear, protective, intimate companions whom you trust upon and rely upon them. حَتَّى يُحَاجِرُوا Until they migrate. Until they make hijrat, fi sabil Allah, until they migrate for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَإِن تَوَلَّوْا فَغُذُوهُمْ وَقْتُلُوهُمْ Okay, let me just translate this first. Let me translate this to his eyes and then we'll comment on it. Alright? So what you should do is that you should not take them. If they turn back, then you should seize them and you should kill them. هَيْثُوا وَجَدْتُمُوهُمْ Wherever you may find them. I'm going to explain to you who this group of people are and what it means to turn back. You should seize them and kill them wherever you find them. And that you should not You should not take from them a single guide, a single protecting friend, and not a single helper. Right? Okay. Illa, except... الَّذِينَ يَسِلُونَ إِلَىٰ قَوْمٍ بَيْنَكُمْ وَبَيْنَهُمْ مِثَاقٌ Except those who have gone and sought refuge with any community, that between that community and you there is a treaty, there is a pact, mithaq, there is an agreement. So if they enter neutral territory, 
if they enter neutral territory, then you cannot go and chase them and seize them and kill them for what they did. Ojaukum hasidat suduruhum an yukatilukum o yukatilukomahum. Or if they come to you in such a condition that, in such a condition that what? That they are not going to fight you, nor are they going to fight, uh, nor uh, they're not going to, they're, they're, that their hearts forbid them from fighting you and from fighting their own nation, their own kum. Walau sha'allahu lasallatahum alaykum. And if it was the will of Allah SWT, He would have made them triumphant over you, He would have given them dominion and sovereignty over you. Then, in such a case, they would have surely fought you. فَلَقَاتُلُكُمْ They would have definitely, definitely fought you if they had had that ability. فَنَعْتَزَلُوكُمْ فَلَمْ يُقَاتُلُكُمْ وَأَلْقَوْ إِلَيْكُمُ السَّلَمْ Alright. If they keep away from you, if they refrain from you, if they hold back from you, then you should definitely not fight them and you should maintain peace with them. What's this? وَأَلْقَوْ إِلَيْكُمُ السَّلَمْ Salam is from that salam. That you should present and place and maintain peace between you and them. Alright. فَمَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ عَلَيْهِمْ سَبِيلًا And know that Allah SWT has not made for you any path against them if they don't fight and they want to have peace. So many times, right, people who are misrepresenting, trying to misrepresent the teachings of jihad, will just quote the first part. What is that? وَقْتِلُوهُمْ هَيْثُ وَجِدْتُمُوهُمْ Literally, they will just take that. Kill them wherever you find them. Allah Ta'ala didn't say that. Right? He gave all types of exceptions to that. And it's a particular group who you were supposed to attack. And those were the unjust aggressors that were spending fitna and fasad, discord and sedition. So that has to be put an end to. Don't you see today the army say the same way? They say that if there's somebody who they view and they view that what they're doing is a fitna, so they will attack them. And they will try to eliminate them wherever they find them. Right? So Islam is saying the exact same thing. Islam is saying nothing different than any military strategy in the world says. That if there's an unjust aggressor spreading fitna and mayhem and murder and plotting and machinating, then they should be found. But Islam is saying, number one, if they escape to an area in which there's a treaty between you and them, even then you can't do anything to them. You can't go after them. No cross-border raids. <laughs> That's what Quran is saying. No cross-border. You can't do that. You can't do that. Right? And if they don't fight you, if they keep away from you, right, and do not fight you, then what you should do, you have to maintain peace with them. You have to maintain peace with them. You have to, alqaw literally means to toss peace to them, offer peace to them, maintain peace to them. Now Allah Ta'ala is saying, however, that if it was up to them, Allah Ta'ala is saying that even though they're not fighting you only because they don't have the ability and power, that if they had it, right? If they had the power, they would have certainly fought you. But even if you know that, even then you should be peaceful with them. So even their potential, even their inner desire to fight is not justification in Islam to fight them. Only if they actually fight. It's a very different teaching, right? Even their inner desire to fight is not a justification to fight the aggressor. Some, somebody's desire to be unjust and be an aggressor is not enough to fight them. Only if they actually engage in that unjust aggression and fight you, then you can fight them back. And if they don't, then you must offer and maintain that peace to them. 
Alright. And then look what Allah Ta'ala said at the very end, فَمَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لُكُمْ عَلَيْهِمْ سَبِيلًا And then in that case, once you have made this peace with them, that Allah Ta'ala has not given you any way, any means, any leave to do anything to them. Allah Akbar. And this is talking about unbelievers. This is talking about unbelievers. So this whole passage taken, there's, there's another verse, this whole package is making it clear that Allah Ta'ala is enabling Muslims to live in peace with non-believers as long as those non-believers don't engage in any aggression and any unjust transgression. Right? Okay. سَتَجِدُونَ آخَرِينَ يُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يَأْمَنُوكُمْ وَيَأْمَنُوا قَوْمَهُمْ كُلَّمَا رُدُّوا إِلَى الْفِتْنَةِ See, they were there, fitna, and we did this before, fitna ashaddu min al-qatl. Alright. Urkisu fiha fa in lam yatazilukum wa yulku ilaykum salama wa yakufu e diahum fakudu hum waktuluhum heithu thakiftumu hum wa ula ikum jaalna lukum alayhim sultanam mubina. Alright. Here Allah Sponta is saying is that then Satajaduna very soon you will find that there are others. Akhirin there are others from them. And what do they wish to read and what they wish is ayyamanu. They want to put you, they want to remain in aman from you. Wayamanu kaumhum, and they want to remain in aman from their own kaum, their own community. Each time that they are returned to fitna, each time they are returned, urki sufiha, they turn back to it. Each time that they are returned to fitna, they return back to it. If they do not keep away from you, if in laman yatazilukum, if they don't stay away from you, what does that mean? If they don't stay away from you, then mayulku ilaykum salama. If they don't stay away from you and they don't offer you ilaykum salama, so over there Allah Taala said you should offer them peace, right? Allah said you should offer them and maintain peace with them. Here it's referring to their response, it may be a group from them, that they don't stay away from you and they don't offer you peace. That group doesn't stay away from you, means they aggress against you. They don't accept the peace you offer them. They're not interested in peace. So these are unjust aggressors. And then what do they do even further than that? Then what do they do? And so what is Allah SWT saying? And that they don't, they restrain their, they don't restrain their hands. They don't hold back from engaging you. Right? They don't hold back from engaging you. Don't restrain their hands. means they launch their forces against you. Alright? In such a case, فَخُذُوهُمْ Then you should grab them. وَقْتُلُوهُمْ You should kill them. هَيْثُ Same thing wherever you should find them. وَأُولَائِكُمْ And such people like that, who don't refrain, engage in unjust aggression, don't accept the peace, nor offer you peace, and don't hold back and launch their forces against you. وَأُولَائِكُمْ For such people, جَعَلْنَا لَكُمْ عَلَيْهِمْ سُلْطَانًا مُبِينًا We have given you clear proof and authority. We've given you clear authority and warrant to engage them. So it's also saying that you can only engage militarily when the permission of Allah SWT comes. And He's only given permission in these cases. So up to now, every single thing that we have shown you about the ayat of jihad makes complete perfect sense. Alright? And nothing in there suggests that Islam is in the slightest way unjust in any way. Alright. 
Here now in verse number 92, Allah subhanahu wa is going to mention shift years now and talk about murder. The rubbed here is that because Allah Ta'ala wants to show that believers, murdering believers is as great an evil as unbelievers engaging in unjust aggression and warfare against believers. That's the rubbed. So when just talking about these unjust believers, Allah is now going to talk about murder. And it does not befit a believer, it is not at all permissible for a believer, it means it's outright forbidden for any believer. That they should kill any other believer. Except in error. And what does error mean? So sometimes the most common example given of error in Western criminal law which is sort of involuntary manslaughter, is you were hunting and you thought it was a deer, but actually it was your friend, <laughs> right? Or it was some stranger. So that's involuntary manslaughter. That's killing somebody by error. Now here, it doesn't mean Allah is giving some type of permission for that, but what Allah is saying is that's not a sin, right? That's not a sin because you didn't know. That was an unintended, unintended thing to do. However, that person, وَمَنْ قَتَلَ مُؤْمِنًا for that person who kills a person with error. They're not completely off. They may be free from sin, but they should still make some mystic foreign toba. They won't be punished with the criminal punishment of capital punishment or the criminal punishment uh, the criminal punishment of capital punishment. They won't be killed for that. But what should they fat tahriru rakabatin mu'minatin? Tahrir means to free. Hurriya hur. So tahrir means to make free. They should set free a believing slave. That's one thing they should do. And they may not own a slave. They should go buy or, or purchase the freedom of some slave. That may not, that is not available today. That possibility may not be available, is not available today. Wadiyatum, musallamatun ila ahlihi. Diyat is what we call, uh, what in English sometimes they call blood money. Right? Blood money, the laws of diyat is that there's a particular amount of money that is given. Now here it's not suggesting in any way that the deen of Islam thinks that uh, a life is worth money. But again, sometimes if you, if somebody, like in that hunting accident, right, well, somebody lost a father, let's say, let's say it was a man, or it could be a woman also, it doesn't matter, and somebody lost a mother, somebody lost a daughter, somebody lost a son, somebody lost someone, maybe that person was earning financially for them, maybe they lost their financial support, or maybe, you know, you can never return that life to them, but maybe you could make up for your mistake by trying to... You've lowered their quality of life, put it that way. You've lowered their emotional quality of life because your inadvertent mistake, this inadvertent killing, right? Inadvertent mistake caused a loss of life. So maybe you could, you can do something to try to increase some other quality of life of theirs. Now, Diyat classically used to be 100 camels for every life, right? And... The detailed legal ruling on this, just so you know, it's quite a detailed ruling, is that uh, the camels were supposed to be 20. In, in, in the Arabs, they really distinguish between how old the camel is. And when you do detailed rulings of zakat, this also makes a difference. So 22-year-old camels, 23-year-old camels, 22-year-old female camels, 23-year-old female camels, 22-year-old male camels, 24-year-old female camels, and 25-year-old female camels. These were the 100 type of camels that should be given. The second option that was given was 1,000 dinars. Dinars are gold. Or 10,000 dirhams, that's silver. Dinar referred to gold pieces, gold coins, and dirhams referred to silver pieces. Now, I don't know what the monetary equivalent of that would be, right? But I would think 1,000 gold pieces is quite a lot. 
and 10,000 silver pieces would be quite a lot. Now that is something, and people have looked at this, this is called Islamic numismatics, they've looked at the history of the coins at that time, and they've had to calculate a metric equivalence of ounces and troy ounces and how much it was, right, and then the gold prices keep changing. But maybe today you may be better off giving the camels, right? Uh, but it seems to be a particular amount of money. All right. Okay, so diet is given uh, for this issue of involuntary manslaughter. And it should be given over and transferred to the ahl. All right? To the ahl. Another ruling, by the way, I will tell you that, right? The ahlihi means it should go to the inheritors. Who would have been the... What a thought that this person, the deceased, would have left behind certain inheritors and it will be distributed amongst inheritors according to the laws of inheritance. If the, if the unintentional murder, even involuntary homicide victim is a man, uh, is a woman, then the diet is half. This is also an issue that people have raised, right, that why is this, this gender disparity, right? Disparity and discrimination are two separate things, right? Disparity and discrimination are two separate things. So there's a disparity here. The reason is what I had mentioned to you yesterday when we did inheritance laws. That the notion is that the loss of a man represents the loss of earning power for the ahl or the inheritors of that man. Whether real earning power if the man was of mature age and earning or whether a future potential earning power if the male was a boy. And that we explained yesterday when we said that earning is incumbent is farther on the man, whereas earning is not farther on the woman. So Islamic laws are designed with an understanding of Islamic compliance. So it's understood that that man who would have followed the teachings of Islam and viewed it upon him as farther to earn, would have almost always, if not necessarily, earned more than a woman who would have followed the teachings of Islam and upon her it's not farther to earn. Right? And even today, I think, in every society in the world, right, the average GDP of a man is more than the average GDP or income or however you want to calculate it than a woman. So Islam is just acknowledging that fact because it's trying to compensate for the financial loss incurred to that family due to involuntary manslaughter. It's not suggesting a woman is inferior to a man due to femininity. It's suggesting that the loss of potential or real earning to that family was normally greater when the man is lost than when the woman is lost. Right? Okay. Um, right. What verse are we on? Number 92. Okay. And this means literally that unless the ahl, the heirs, choose to give it away in sadaqah, means they choose to waive it. This can mean two things. Either they waive it, they don't take it, or they take it and they give it to charity, or the person gives it to charity. Alright? Okay. This was the first possibility. Second, that let's say the victim of that involuntary manslaughter was not a believer, but was actually the member of a community who is an enemy to you. Is an enemy to you, but but he himself is a believer. What does this mean? So this may have meant, for example, a particular tribe in Quraysh, let's say, that was still unbelievers in Makkah and they were still waging war against the Prophet and companions in Medina Manara. But one of them was a believer, and he was somehow in, killed through some accident, right? So in that case, again, you will find the same thing. That you have to free a mu'min, a free, a Muslim believing slave, 
مَنْ كَانَ مِنْ قَوْمٍ بَيْنُكُمْ So what, what do you see here? What's missing here? A believing slave is to set free and that's it. There's no diet. There's no diet over there. Right? Okay. And if that murdered victim is from such a community or a nation that between them and between you and between them is a treaty, of a covenant, right? Then you must give the diet over to them, to his al, to his inheritors. And you must also free a believing slave. Why did Islam have this law? Now, the purpose of this law was to incentivize or to give special consideration to members of those communities who had engaged in treaties of peace with the Muslims. So this also shows the Quran is showing that Allah Ta'ala wants that Muslims should engage in treaties of peace and mutual peace and covenants with non-believers. And Allah Ta'ala wants the Muslims to incentivize non-believers to do so by giving them favorable treatment, by giving them some type of favorable treatment. All right. فَمَنْ لَمْ يَجِدْ فَسِيَامُ شَهْرَيْنِ مُتَتَابِعِينَ And that person who doesn't have the ability, now first meaning of this is that person who doesn't have the ability to free the believing slave, what do they have to do? Instead they have to fast 60 days consecutively. 60 days consecutive means that if they fasted 43 days and the 44th day they slipped, the clock is reset to zero. Allahu Akbar. This is a very tough thing to do. It's going to be tough enough inshallah now in Ramadan. Imagine doing it when nobody else is fasting and you have to do it for 60 days. Up to Pura Mahaloga, right? All the people are making sari for you, iftar for you, there's a community, right? Imagine trying to do it alone for 60 days consecutively. 60 days consecutively. But what is this going to be? Tawbatam min Allah that this will be viewed as a repentance as a means of as a means of repentance min Allah that has been dictated from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all knowing and is all wise. He is knowing what you do, he knows what you were uh, he is he knows, he is knowing what you do and he is all wise in determining these laws of kafara and diya. I told you that the diet for a woman is half that of a man. Another thing is that the diet for a dhimmi is equal to that of a Muslim. So here I mentioned the issue of being a believer. Another thing is dhimmi. Dhimmi means a non-Muslim who is living under protected status on the Muslim empire. They're agreed to be a citizen. Just like, right, some Muslim agrees to be a citizen of a Christian country today, right? So they say, okay, we grant you rights of citizenship. We grant you a certain right and you will also get social security benefits and you will also get certain things, right? So just like that, Deen of Islam had something like that, which is called being a dhimmi. So all of this, which is, you know, what was just said here, if a dhimmi was killed, the exact same rulings would apply. There's no distinguishing. So now Deen of Islam is showing, first it was showing that non-believers who remain outside the Muslim community, you should have treaties and try to live in peace with them. This is showing that non-believers who live inside the Muslim community, that for them we want to give this protected status, that they should accept their status as dhimmi, right? And they will be given these same rights in terms of uh, involuntary manslaughter. All right.
some fuqah have said that if the person isn't able to pay the diet, let's say he doesn't have that much money, right? So actually his, either the people who would be his inheritors or the people from whom he would inherit from or in traditional tribal society, his aqilah, his tribe or his clan, they would collectively have to pay that diet. Because there was a notion or a feeling, right, that your member from your tribe has killed a member from that tribe. Now this isn't just tribalism. This has to do with reparations, right? And sometimes in English when we have this term war reparations, it's talking about entire countries, right, making reparations or making amends, financial amends, for what their country did on behalf of the country did to other countries. Like, for example, in your war that you had in 1971 between West Pakistan and East Pakistan. So those individual soldiers may not be able to pay for the atrocities that they did in Bangladesh. But as a country, as a country, Pakistan should offer some type of amends and reparations to the victims who may have suffered in that war. All right? I know that you're taught maybe a different version of those events in Pakistan studies, but something for you to think about. All right? Something for you to think about. All right. There are obviously other types of murder, right? There, some of those are going to come uh, later, but the next I is going to be discussing intentional murder, right? So this is called katle khata, and intentional murder is called katle amat. So now we're on verse number 93. Here Allah says in Quran, This is known as That person who kills a believer deliberately, Outright murder, first degree homicide. Right? Okay. فَجَزَاؤُهُ جَهَنَّمُ خَالِدًا fiha. The recompense and the punishment that the person will have to deal with is they will enter into Jahannam and Akhirah. They will burn in hellfire khalidan fiha. They will dwell therein. وَغَذِبَ اللَّهُ alayhi. Allahu Akbar. So Jahannam was enough. Look at this. وَغَذِبَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ And Allah Taala's wrath and anger and fury will fall on such a person. وَلَعَنَهُ And Allah Taala is going to cast that person outside of His mercy. وَأَدَّلَهُ أَذَابًا أَذِيمًا And Allah Taala is personally going to prepare specifically for that murderer أَذَابًا أَذِيمًا An intense punishment. This is showing you, this is perhaps the most strongest words against murder in any text in the world. Any philosophical text, religious text, legal book, these are probably the strongest words in the entire history of humanity to condemn murder. Alright. Still a person may ask, what if a person does Tawbah? Right? So that we've covered before, that if a person makes true Tawbah, as far as Akhirah goes, right? Allah SWT can forgive all of a person's sins. Right? Allah SWT did that ayah except for shirk. If a person does tawbah of shirk, they can obviously then become a believer. Right? So that is a separate thing. But the suggestion here is that person who doesn't make tawbah, who commits a murder. Alright? And until and unless they make tawbah, they will be viewed as this having come upon them. Okay? Alright. Second question that people ask is that let's say the person doesn't make tawbah, but they still believe in Allah. They're not an atheist, they still have iman. Will they be in Jahannam forever? So this is what I would mentioned to you, that if a person has iman, they will eventually leave Jahannam. 
I mentioned this to you in suicide, right? And I told you that was also a type of murder. It's just that the murder victim is the same person as the murderer, but it's also viewed as murder. So this ayah applies to suicide as well, and it applies to murder as well. But if the person doesn't make tawbah, now the thing is that a person who makes suicide doesn't have the chance to make tawbah. That's why suicide is viewed as such a grave sin. You understand by definition, because tawbah is something that you can do when you're alive. And when you do a suicide, you're no longer alive that you can make tawbah. Right? Even the person who commits murder and doesn't make tawbah, let's say he rots away in prison or somehow is never caught. Many murders don't get caught, especially in your country. Right? Many murderers don't get caught. And they may die of natural causes or some other reason later on in life. If they never make tawbah, this verse will apply to them. But if they had a drop of iman in their heart, they would eventually come out. But by eventually, we're talking about a very long and a very intense, very intense period in Jahannam. All right? Okay. Next high, number four. Allah SWT says in Quran that Ya Amanu that O you who believe, O you have Iman in Allah SWT, Ida Dharaptum fi Sibilillah, that when you travel the earth in the path of Allah SWT, Hutabayanu, Wala tukulu liman alqa ilaykumusalama, lasta mu'minam. Okay, now this is referring to an issue that when you travel in the way you should verify who a person is. And don't tell the one who doesn't make their Islam clear and apparent to you that you are not a believer. Don't tell that person that they're not a believer. Don't say to them, Lasta mu'minan, that you are not a believer. Now, what happened here, the incident of this revelation, is that there was a group of people who were attacking the Muslims. They were doing that unjust aggression fitna. So Sayyidina Rasulullah sent some Sahaba, as we have learned in Quran, to fight the aggressor with like aggression. When they came up upon, you see, now you don't always know, right? So some enemy party makes a raid. You don't have cameras there that captures their very pictures. But obviously you know that their party exists, and they made a raid and they attacked some people, so then you set forth out to repel them, right? Now when you engage them or when you encounter them, there was a question that Sahaba thought, that, well, how do we know? Because it's a desert community. And individual Bedouins had accepted Islam, right? So, how, so their view is that, okay, if the person doesn't, is not willing to tell me that they're Muslim, I'm just going to assume then, and it seems a fairly rational thing to assume, that if they don't tell me verbally that they're Muslim, I'm going to assume then that they're one of that enemy party. Alright? And when I think they're one of the enemy party, then I will engage them. Alright. Okay, now this happened, now, this hadith, is, this, there's an incident of this uh, that has been mentioned in the Sahih Bukhari. That Sayyidina Rasulullah once, uh, that's, no, sorry, not the Prophet, a hadith mentioned in Bukhari, that's a group of Sahaba once encountered when they were trying to track down and trace down these unjust aggressors who would attack them, they encountered a person. And that person, right, uh, was traveling, and that person was traveling with their wealth. Okay. Now, this person, what they did is this person said, Assalamu alaikum to them. The Sahaba thought that this person was like a munafiq, was faking it, right? Was pretending, because they had had this policy before, like I told you, that if somebody said didn't say salam, 
they would assume that this was a sign that they weren't believers. And this is erupt, by the way, to the earlier ayah that we did, that saying, As-salamu alaykum, is indeed a sign of your iman, to the extent that it determines who or who not to engage in battle when you're trying to fight the aggressor. So they thought that this person was just pretending. Why did they think he was pretending? Because they happened to catch him with a lot of wealth. So they thought that, okay, this person has a lot of money, and he's one of those unbelievers who have been attacking us. And because he wants to save his money, he is saying salam to us. So they didn't, if you will, you can say they didn't believe him, right? So they engaged him in battle also, and they ended up killing him. When they brought back his, their, his wealth to the Prophet is Baytul Mal, is Mala Ghanimat for the Baytul Mal, this ayah came down and Allah subhanahu wa condemned this. And said, no, you shouldn't do that. And what does it mean? And this is a general ruling that in the deen of Islam, but let me explain this also, because sometimes people get this confused in marriage. That if the person says that they are Muslim, we will take them at face value as long as there's nothing else that they're doing on face value that clearly disproves their statement. For example, a person says, I am Muslim, but then you see that he drinks, he never prays. Let's say a convert, right? So, a, 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 not, a, not a convert, a non-Muslim wants to marry a Muslim woman. Right? This is coming later. But a Muslim woman cannot marry a non-Muslim man. So he says the words, I'm Muslim. But you see that he never prays, never goes for Jummah, never pays zakat, never fasts, never prays, drinks, eats pork, everything. Then his actions are belying his words. So we're still going to take him on face value. We're not reading into his heart. Only Allah can do that. But if a person says, I'm Muslim, and to your knowledge, at least, you don't know anything about that person, that belies his words, you understand by belied, that falsified, that misprove his words, then you will have to treat that person as a Muslim, view that person as a Muslim, based on their face value. Alright? Okay. Similar hadith has been mentioned uh, by Imam Al-Tirmidhi, and that is a bit more details, uh, and khair, uh, you know, uh, either way, there may have been one incident, there may have been multiple incidents. So this is when Sayyidina Rasulullah actually said that I've been commanded to fight people till they testify La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. It didn't mean I'm commanded to fight everyone in the world until they say this. It means I'm commanded to fight the unjust aggressors who are unbelievers who are fighting us as long as they don't accept Iman. If they accept Iman, they don't have to fight them anymore. Right? And that's what this ayah is talking about. Okay. And then Allah Ta'ala is actually saying and what was tabtaguna aradal hayat dunya Now this literally means that you were seeking uh, the stuff of this world. Right? What does it mean here? That it means that you were seeking the gains of this world, the stuff of this world. In other words, that you thought that he was trying to hide the wealth of the unbelievers. And you thought you would financially cripple the financing of these unbeliever, unjust aggressors. Alright. فَمَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ فَتَبَيَّنُوا so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done, I'm sorry, كَذَلِكَ كُنْتُمْ مِنْ قَبْلُ فَمَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ فَتَبَيَّنُوا So this is how you were, right? You were the same before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestowed His special grace upon you. This is suggesting that look, you were also either a non-believer or it can mean that you were also a new believer before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent His special grace on you. إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِمَا and indeed Allah subhanahu wa is all knowing about each and every single thing that you do. Alright.
Also, I want to clarify what I mentioned to you about that person. No person can be declared an unbeliever due to any sin that they do. Right? It's only that particular case in which a person is claiming that they have converted, right, for the sake of marriage or for some, or, or, well, they're claiming legitimately. But they don't, but their actions belie their words. Otherwise, if there's a person who is not claiming to accept Islam newly, but has already been on Islam, and they don't pray, and they drink, and they eat pork, and they don't fast, and they don't pay zakat, you still can't label them an unbeliever. They're only an unbeliever if they deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they deny these are the commands of Allah. You see, one thing is not praying, one thing is saying there's no such thing as salah. If you say there's no such thing as prayer, that means you're disbelieving in Quran, that constitutes disbelief. But if a person says, no, I know I'm a Muslim and I know Islam says I should pray, but I don't pray out of laziness or apathy or disinterest or lack of spirituality, right? And this is what those of you who were here last night, but they also remember our Shaykh was saying, that ability to pray requires certain spiritual strength. Just like the ability to do physical exercise requires that you should have eaten your food for that day, just like that, the ability to pray requires a certain spiritual strength. And sometimes there are some people, because they're so non-practicing, they don't have that strength, they don't have that ability. They don't have the ability to pray. And you understand, they've had the physical ability to pray, but they don't have the inclination to pray, the yearning to pray. They don't have the spiritual ability to pray. That doesn't make a person an unbeliever. Right? So as far as people who have been Muslim in previous, you know, have some mm, days of Islam preceding them, the default position is that you view them as believers. What I said specifically was a person who is an unbeliever who claims to have accepted Islam and doesn't do anything, then that person's actions belie his words. Alright, do you see the difference here? Okay. Alright, verses number 95 and 96. Here Allah Allah is going to talk about... On the end of 94, that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all aware of each and everything that you do. La yastawil qa'iduna min al-mu'minina ghayru ulil dharari wal mujahiduna fi sabilillah. Now this is the first time this word has actually come, mujahid. First time this word has come in Quran al-Kareem. What Allah subhanahu wa is saying is that those believers who sit back without any excuse cannot be considered to those believers, right? Mujahidun fi sabilillah bi amwalihim wa anfusihim who are striving in the path of Allah subhanahu wa both with their wealth and property and assets and financial means wa anfusihim and with their very body and their lives. Fadlallahu al-mujahidina bi amwalihim wa anfusihim al-qa'idina daraja that Allah subhanahu wa has raised and preferred and endowed and sent His grace on the mujahideen by means of that money and assets that they're willing to sacrifice for the cause of Allah, and by means of their lives that they're willing to sacrifice for the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has favored them, al-qa'ideen, over those who sit back and do nothing, daraja. And daraja means many, many, many levels and ranks. Again, what I've explained to you before when these things come up, it doesn't mean that you get emotionally riled up. And somebody recites this one ayah to you, and then presents their own idea of what jihad is and gets you riled up. 
This, so what you should always understand, this is the term I try to make you people use. Hakiki mujahideen, real mujahideen, and fake mujahideen. Real mujahideen is a word in Quran. This is in Quran. I just read it for you. So there can be no, no denying that there is a category of that person. Just like for the American army, they at least try to tell themselves and their population that their soldiers who are fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq are real warriors are fighting in a just cause, fighting a just war. Right? Okay. In fact, so much so that they viewed that the collateral damage, according to their own definition, that means innocent civilians who die, boys and girls and babies and mothers who die, even that is just part of the just war. Unfortunate, but still justified. So deen of Islam and Quran also has a concept of just war. In fact, Harvard University Press has published a book by John Kelsey who actually makes this argument called Just War Tradition and shows that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all of them have concepts of just war. So to malign Islam because of the word jihad is a negative stereotype and propaganda. Harvard University Press is publishing these things. All right? So well, mujahideen means... Those who are truly fighting in a cause of justice as willed and wished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And many of the ahkam and rulings of that I've, Allah has already mentioned before in Quran. But you have to distinguish from them from people and there are people. You cannot deny that there are people like this. Who you can call them the batil or the false or the fake or the charlatan mujahideen. That they invoke the name of jihad and they're not doing things that Allah ta'ala wants or sanctions. And those people will very skillfully present all these ayat and all the ahadith to bring you to a high emotional level. Right? Now the person, especially the young man who's listening to that, they don't know enough to tell what's batil and haq. Right? They're just looking out of their sweet sincerity and piety that they want to be loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the way these ayat and hadith suggest. So you always have to understand that what constitutes jihad and who is a real mujahid is not something that can be decided on the basis of emotions and feelings. Right? That has to be decided and based on the teachings of Quran and Sunnah. So the dua you should make then is that, O oh Allah, we ask that you make the hakiki mujahideen ghalib over the batil mujahideen and also ghalib all over all those kuffar who are causing fitna to the Muslim ummah. Now when you make that dua, it's not your job to know who exactly is all of those three groups. Right? That's not your job. But it is your job to make that dua. It is your job to make that dua. Alright? Okay. So, So there's a Right? So this is then the whole ayah in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned this, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, promised His bliss for them, for each and every one of them. And Allah has preferred those who make this mujahada over those who sit back by conferring and bestowing upon them an ajran adima, a tremendous reward. And they will have many, many stages and lofty stages minhu from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. and forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has been and will always be all forgiving and all merciful. Alright? Okay. 
original, obviously, meaning of this ayah was that those munafikun who stayed back, so like the ones we did when we talked about Uhud, the three hundred stayed back, that is an example of the qa'idin, right? The ones who sat back and did nothing to fight against the unjust aggression to at least defend themselves, as we mentioned in Quran al-Karim. Okay. Verse number 97 to 99. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ تَوَفَّاهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ ظَالِمِي أَنفُسِهِمْ قَالُوا فِيمَا كُنْتُمْ قَالُوا كُنَّا مُسْتَضْعَفِينَ فِي الْأَرْضِ قَالُوا أَلَمْ تَكُنْ أَرْضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِئَةً فَتُهَاجِرُوا فِيهَا فَأُولَائِكَ مَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمْ وَسَاءَتْ مَسِيرًا إِلَّا الْمُسْتَضْعَفِينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوِلْدَانِ لَا يَسْتَتِيُونَ هِيلَةً وَلَا يَحْتَدُونَ سَبِيلًا Okay, here Allah subhanahu wa mentioned indeed the lives of those whom the angels seize. The lives whom tabaffahum means that the angels bring them to their complete period of expiration on earth. That's a literal translation. It simply means those who the angels seize in their death. And there were such people, who were they? ظَالِمِي أَنفُسِهِمْ those of you who do Arabic, let's say Zalimina, but it's Mudaf, so the noon of Jama has been dropped due to the Idafa. Zalimi Anfusihim, that they've all been oppressing their own souls by committing sins. Right? So, what will be said to them? Qalu, the angels will tell them, Fima kuntum. That what in the world were you doing? What was your how? What was your condition? What state were you in? What type of people were you? Alright? Qalu, so they will respond to the angels. That kunna mustazafina fil ard. That we were those who were weakened, who were harassed, who were discriminated against on this earth. The angels respond to them. Kalu. Uh, the angels respond to them. That was not, uh, was not the land of Allah Subhanahu wa so vast. Fatuhajuru fiha. That you could have migrated in it. You could have left that oppression. And this shows another option. Then, excuse me, another option other than jihad is if you're not able. To fight the unjust aggressor and repel their injustice against you, then you can make hijrat. That's another option. Right? That's another way, an option for what? Another way to save yourself from that fitna. To save yourself from that fitna. So then, so when they say that to them, now they're not given a chance to answer this one, right? They said that Allah Ta'ala's land and earth was so vast and wide that you could have migrated therein. So then what happens from ma'wahum? Ma'wahum uh, Jahannam. So the final resting abode and place for these people of them will be Jahannam, will be the fire of hell. So this is those people who did neither jihad nor hijrat. What does it mean? They chose to comply with the fitna. They chose to acquiesce. They chose to acquiesce to unjust aggression. They chose to acquiesce to injustice, injustice or unjust aggression. Wasaat masira. And indeed, that is. The worst and worst of places to be taken to or the worst and worst of places to go. Inla, except those people. So who is not going to be considered amongst these people who acquiesced and therefore deserve Jahannam? Illa al-mustaz afina min al-rijal. That those who were made weakened or harassed or discriminated against from the men and the women and from the children who were not able. La yastati'una hila. Hila doesn't mean you're Urdu, Hila, Hila Bazi. Hila means they were not able to make up a strategy, a plan to migrate, where to go, what to do. They couldn't devise this. They didn't know where to go. There may be no country was willing to take them as a refugee, put it in today's terms. Right? Where could they go? 
So Syria closed their border to them and Iran closed their border to them. So where can they go? They can't make hijrah. They have nowhere to go from Iraq. Right? So there was no means for them and they couldn't make up a plan or a strategy for that hijrah. Alright? And wala yahtaduna sabila. Literally it means that they are not able to be guided on the way. Which means that they don't know the way out of this fitna. They don't know the way out. Maybe because of confusion. Maybe because of ignorance. Maybe because of tragedy. Maybe because of travesty. Right? So these people will not be held to account even if they did neither jihad nor did they make hijrah. Okay? And most of the Muslim oppressed today I think would fall in this category. Right? Many or most of the Muslims who are oppressed today from the men and the women and the children fall into this category. Right. Okay. Next ayat, Allah subhanahu is going to talk a little bit more uh, about this concept of hijra itself. And very indeed, these are the people who very near or almost certainly Allah subhanahu will pardon them. And indeed, Allah subhanahu is all pardoning, all forgiving. Alright. However, now that next ayat is going to talk about hijra. And that person who migrates for the sake of Allah subhanahu who migrates on the path of Allah subhanahu What does it mean? Migrate and move from a place of fitna where they are being faced with any, many, any of many types of injustice and aggression. And they migrate to what type of place? A place where they are allowed to live in peace and security and freedom to establish their deen. The way Allah subhanahu revealed it to them and wants them to establish it. So these are the reasons for insha. That person, then what will they find? Yadin fil ardi muragaman kathiran wasa'a. That they will find many, many places to live, many, many places to reside, many, many pastures to graze, many, many crops to harvest. It means they will find a plenitude. Wasa'a, they will find a plenitude and a, and a vastness. Wamay yakhruj mim baytihi muhajiran ilallah. That person who leaves their home. With the intention that they are migrating ilallahi wa rasulihi, and they are migrating for the sake of Allah subhanahu on their messenger, thumma yudrik hul mautu, and then death overcomes them, death overtakes them, fakad waka'a ajruhu Allah, even then their reward lies with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here is showing the importance of niyyah. That even if they're not able to successfully fully migrate, but they make the intention. And the key word here is that how does Allah subhanahu describe this migration? Illallahi wa rasuli. That they're migrating to Allah and to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa kana Allahu ghafoodan rahimah. And indeed Allah subhanahu is all forgiving, all merciful. Now you would know in history there are several types of hijrah that took place. The first hijrah was that which Nabiya Karim sallallahu sent a few sahaba to Abyssinia, modern day Ethiopia. The reason was that there was a Christian ruler there who had somehow communicated that he was open to and friendly to Islam. And many then hadith suggest that before he passed away, he actually passed away as a believer. As a believer in Sayyidina Rasulullah as a full-fledged Muslim. But that was a very small number of Sahaba Kram who went there. Second hijrah, uh, that obviously is the most famous hijrah, and that is the hijrah from... Uh, Makkah Mukarramah to Medina Manawra. 
However, this ayah is not confined just to these hijras that took place in the time of the Prophet It is for all times. It is for all times. Now one problem is that today we live in this globalized world where every place is settled and populated, right? But for many, many centuries, even after Islam, there was still the age of expiration. Famous United States, if you believe that Columbus is the one who discovered it. So he discovered it in 1492, right? Which is about 800 in the 800s Hijri. And I don't even know when Australia was discovered. So in the earlier centuries, the first maybe thousand years of Deen of Islam, Hijrat could actually mean to go migrate into unsettled, unpopulated territories, right? And actually then establish your own community there where you can live in peace and security. Now the state of the world is that every single corner of the world has been territorialized and divided into this global sort of realm of about 200 or so nation states. So there's no real... Uh, migrating in that sense that you can migrate and set up and establish your own community. So now what is the choice for the contemporary person is to migrate within existing communities, i.e. communities and nation states. And within them, yes, certainly, there will be some countries which give you more freedom of religion and some countries which give you less freedom of religion. There will be some countries that contain more unjust aggression and discrimination against Muslims and there will be other countries that contain less so, for example, in France, a woman will not be allowed to wear niqab. In England, she will be allowed to. So, mini migration could be within the EU that are people who have been living in France and they feel that the turn of the society is such that they're not going to give us the freedom to live in the way that we want, right? Then they could migrate. But if they're going to migrate, they should try to thank them. Then what is that place where I could migrate to where I would have even more freedom of religion, right? And there's another type of migration which is for the sake of dunya. And that is a migration that means, okay, let me migrate from Pakistan to, well, in the good old days it was Dubai. Now you guys have given up on Dubai. I don't know what you've come up with a substitute for Dubai, but Dubai was the best, quick, easiest, the best thing, right? And for the Karachis, so they love Dubai. They come to Dubai more than they come to Lahore, right? But now that, that's messed up. That's no longer a safe haven. So it's this notion of safe haven, right? Now people, when they look at it in terms of dunya, we're looking at a safe haven for their investments, for their real estate, for their property, right? For a safe haven where the, the electricity wouldn't go, where they would have access to all types of things. Quran is teaching you that you should look for a safe haven for your deen. That you should, if you're going to migrate, you should migrate to a place in which your deen will be preserved. Your deen will be more safe. The deen of your children will be preserved. Now, many times people think it's cliched, right? that they can know if you move to America and Canada, right? It doesn't mean that the kids' deen will be spoiled, and there are plenty of masjids there, and there are plenty of Muslims there. Some people even use me. I was born and raised in America, right? So I want to tell you openly, right? At least about myself, I don't want to be used as an example. I say you shouldn't do qiyas. Qiyas means that, you know, the norm, you have to make your decision based on norms and trends, not individual cases that may even be exceptions. So the norm and trend in any increasingly secular and atheistic society versus the norm and trend, no doubt that Pakistan is also being, especially the urban centers are being secularized at a very rapid rate by your educational institutions. But still, still there is much more iman over here than there is iman over there. Surely a person can remain on their iman anywhere. But a person has to look at whether they're strong enough to face those tests. 
So yes, relatively speaking, America gives much, much more freedom of religion and worship to Muslims than many of these continental European countries do, right? And you haven't appreciated that because many of you may not travel, but there's a world of a difference between, let's say, Belgium, especially Bel Belgium, and Holland, and France on the one hand, and America and Canada on the other hand, right? But if you had even more sensibility, you would also see that there is a world of a difference between America and Canada on the one hand, and Pakistan on the other hand, right? But that is something most of you, at least the ones of you who are sitting in front of me right now, are too young to understand and appreciate these things. But the point was just to mention to you that hijra can uh, still exist in certain ways and making hijra to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the Prophet ﷺ is also based on your niyyah and that niyyah can still be there and that hijra can still be there. Alright, verse number... Uh, yeah, we translate this as well. Okay, verse number 101. So now you've seen dharab means here, those of you who studied sarf, it meant beat, but it also means travel, right? So when you travel the earth, فَلَيْسَ alaykum junahun, There will be no harm upon you, no sin upon you, antaksuru min as salah That you should abbreviate your salah. I will explain to you the akam of this in a moment. In khiftum, an yaf... Okay, now. Let me, okay, let me just say. In khiftum, that if you fear that... If you abridge your salah, if you fear uh, that you are going to be attacked by who? Alladhina kafaru, by those who disbelieve. Inna kafirina kanu lukum aduvum mubina. Indeed, those who disbelieve are open and clear and manifest enemies to you. One thing, let me just do the second part first. Is this shows, right? You know, when the Quran is talking about unbelievers attacking, you're getting a good example of this. You would have to be an extremely unjust heartless, remorseless aggressor to attack the enemy when they're praying, right? And generally, and these are the days, this is not the days of aerial bombing. These are the days of hand-to-hand -hand or sword-to-sword -sword combat. And chivalry dictates in all societies, Arabian, Chinese, Japanese, whatever, that in those types of combat, you do not attack a person when their arms are laid down, right? And this is going to come, this issue of laying down your arms is just going to come in a moment. So when Sahaba Ikram are praying Salah, Chivalry and honorific battle would dictate that the unbelievers would not attack them at that time. But Quran is a testament that these kuffar and mushrikeen of Makkah Mukarramah were so petty and so pathetic and so lacking in honor, right? That they would even attack people when they were praying their salah. Alright, so Allah subhanahu wa is responding to that in Quran. Alright. Now, let me first explain to you the ahkam of kasr as they exist completely, which is much, much more than what is mentioned in this ayah, right? And then I'll explain to you what's going on in this, and maybe we'll translate two more ayahs as well, because this 101 and 102 and 103 mentioned together the ayat that uh, the ahkam pertaining to a person, how you pray salah in a state of jihad or in a state of when you're being attacked. First, generally the issue of kasr, because this ayah does contain the general ruling. Qasr means that, it literally means to abbreviate or shorten. As far as the purposes of salah goes, it means to have the farad salah, to have those ones that may be halved. Right? This is the fancy way of explaining it. Two could be halved into one, but there's no such thing as a one rakah salah. This is the hadith of Allah and Salatul Butera. Salatul Butera means a one rakah salah. This is the ilmi way of explaining it. Now I'll put the simple way to explain to you that those prayers that are four should be halved into two. So that is 
Zohar, Asr, and Isha. Maghrib remains at three, and Fajr remains at two. Second thing is that when a person is traveling, the sunnah prayers are forgiven. I want to make this clear to you because there's a great misunderstanding, unfortunately, that certain groups have spread in Pakistan regarding sunnah prayers. So there's one category of rakats. There's five times of prayer. Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha. In each of those times, there are different categories of prayers that you can pray. The first is that category of prayer that is known as fard. Fard means absolutely mandatory and obligatory. And you did it earlier in an ayah that if you're on jihad, you should do it while walking or while riding the horse. And again, here it's going to come as well. Second is those rakats that are known as sunnah. And third are those rakats that are known as nafil. So fard is very easily understood, absolutely mandatory no matter what, barring some state of complete incapacity. Nafil is very easy to explain also, absolutely optional. Completely free to choose whether you do them or not. If you do them, you will get great sawab and love from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if you don't do them, you will incur no sin at all whatsoever. Easy to understand. The status of sunnah prayers is something that people are confused about. So very simple way for you to understand, these are what we call darajat, these are levels. And sunnah prayer is lower than a fard prayer. All right. Fard prayer is that I'm going to explain it to you in a particular way so that you understand the difference between these two. Fard is that prayer that you have to offer even when you're traveling. It may be a brief, but you still have to offer it when you're traveling. And when you're sick, unless you're incapacitated, I explained to you when we did Tiyamam how a sick person can pray. Or when you're on jihad. Fard is that prayer that you have to offer even if you're sick, even if you're tra- sick, but, but have some capacity to pray even through ishara, even when you're traveling, and even when on jihad. Sunnah is the name of that prayer that you have to offer, but you can leave it if you were sick, if you were traveling, or if you were on jihad. Sunnah means the Prophet ﷺ. So we are going to pray those prayers, for all our prayers. The Prophet ﷺ is our model. Those prayers, so for example, the Prophet didn't say this word, this is fard and this is sunnah muakkadah. The jurists and muhaddisin came up with these labels based on prophetic practice. That prayer, those particular rakats, that the Prophet offered all the time, no matter what, even while traveling, even when ill, and even when on jihad, they gave the label of those prayers fard. Those prayer, and therefore we also have to offer them all the time, even if on jihad or traveling or sick. Care for you for that means two out of three. Right? Okay. Sunnah is the label that they gave that there were certain prayers that the Prophet always offered. Always offered except when he was either sick or traveling or on jihad. So we will also then have to always offer them Unless we are sick or traveling or on jihad. And the name of that is sunnah. And nafil are those prayers that Sayyidina Rasulullah did not always offer. And left them for no known identifiable reason. Left them for any reason whatsoever or no reason whatsoever. So we don't have to offer them always. And we can also leave them for any reason whatsoever. We can also even leave them for no reason whatsoever. That's nothing. Sunnah only to be left for the same reasons that the Prophet ﷺ left them, traveling, illness, and jihad. 
and fard, that prayer, because the Prophet didn't leave it for any reason. So we can also not leave it for any reason. Being incapacitated is a separate thing. Not having capacity, ability, that's a separate thing. Right? It's that simple. Unfortunately, people think that no, sunnah are also optional. Sunnah are not optional. Sunnah are optional when you're traveling, when you're sick, and when you're on jihad. So the example here was traveling. So when you're traveling, you have the farth prayers that are asr, zuhar, asr, and isha. And the sunnahs become nafil. The sunnahs get dropped at darajah. Just like the farth get dropped at darajah, they become half. The sunnahs get dropped at darajah, they become nafil. So they're completely optional. However, the adab is that there are two types of being a musafir. One is what we call hukman musafir, and one is halan musafir. Hukman musafir is that person who has traveled some place which is beyond 48 or 50 miles of their home, and their intention is to stay in that place, but for less than 15 days. So in that case, that person will fall under the hukam of a musafir. If they stay there for 15 days or greater, so greater than equal to 15, they're now muqeem, they're resident. But less than 15, they're a musafir. When you're in the hukam of a musafir, then all these rulings apply to you. Easy way I can explain to you in, in English Urdu. Watch this. In English Urdu. Namaz half, jamaat maaf, and sunnat maaf. That's it. Three ways you can understand it when you're traveling. Namaz half, that was the English Urdu, just that one word. right? The rest is Urdu. Ye half is a zabradas word. Namaz half, jamaat maaf, and sunnat maaf. Okay. However, it's considered adab to look at your hal. Are you hal and musafir? What does that mean? That suffer normally entails some difficulty. And that certainly during the journey, you have that difficulty. But once you arrive, so let me give you an example. You decide to go to Makkah Makaramah and Medina Manara for 12 days. So you're musafir, right? You're not going to stay in either one for 15 days. But what's your hal? On the second day you're there, you're completely free. You went there for ibadah. So for you to think, I'm a musafir and therefore I won't pray jamaat in the Kaaba and I'll pray two rakats far, the Zohar abbreviated in my hotel room and no jamaat and no sunnats, I'll say you're crazy. <laughs> right? Technically I have to say that yes, there's no sin. You're hukman, you're musafir. But you're not hal and musafir. Your state and feeling is not that of a traveler. And this may apply sometimes when you go somewhere else. Now you go for a five-day conference from, from Lahore to Karachi. And if you're Naik Sharif, you stay at home in your hotel room and, right? At night. Right? The hotel rooms also have things in there now to make sure your night stay isn't Naik and Sharif. Huh? Right? But you're totally free. You're totally free. So when you're totally free, you should take advantage. You should pray sunnats, nafil, tahajjud. You'd be totally free. Right? So you should look at your hal. The hukam is still there. I'm not changing the hukam. The hukam is still there, but you should look at your halat as well. And if your halat is one of actually, you actually have more time for ibadah than you do when you're at home, because at home you're locked into your busy schedule and families and commitments and all that, and you're actually on this journey, you actually have more free time, then it's the adab of a believer that when they have more free time, they should worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran al-Kareem, إِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَنْسَبْ إِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَنْسَبْ وَإِلَى رَبِّكَ فَنْغَبْ إِذَا فَرَغْتَ When you become free, فَنْسَبْ دَجَّوْ You should become strong and steadfast in إِلَى رَبِّكَ فَنْغَبْ And to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to your Rabb, you should turn in ragbat, you should turn in yearning and longing in ibadah. 
So there is one is the feelings of Quranic insan. Right? So that covers the rulings of Qasr. What is being mentioned here is, uh, this is the beginning of the legislation. So first, this ayah itself is just saying that if you are in khiftum, that you can abbreviate the salah if you have some fear from the enemy. Right? But later on, it became a ruling. So this is the ruling... Uh, Right. Uh, so, the ruling of suffer comes out more generally. This may be that person who has gone out for a military expedition which is less than 48 or 50 miles from home. But in the event of jihad, if they feel some uh, attack from the enemy, they may also abbreviate their salah. Okay, so this is a second condition in which you may able, be able to do qasr. Alright. Now, when you move to the next one, وَإِذَا كُنْتَ فِيهِمْ and now when you are back with them, with the believers, فَأَقَامَتْ لَهُمُ الصَّلَاةِ Then you should establish the salah. How you should do this? Now here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually going to explain in Qur'an the way mujahideen should pray in jamaat. It's quite complicated. The way the mujahideen should play in jamaat when they feel still somewhat that they're engaging the enemy. Alright? So what is that, number one? Um... Number one, فَلْتُكُمْ تَائِفَةٌ مِّنْهُمْ مَعَكَ So one group, one group of you, one group of those mujahideen should stand ma'aka, means literally with Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam. And what should they do? Well, يَأْخُذُوا أَسْلِحَتُهُمْ And they should have their weapons. They shouldn't drop them. They should be carrying their weapons because we've shown you that the unbelievers are such that they'll even attack you when you're praying. So one group should stand with the Prophet and have their weapons. فَإِذَا سَجَدُوا Now, what happens is when they have made sajda, they should fall behind you, فَلْيُكُونُ مِنْ وَرَائِكُمْ They should go behind you. وَتَعْتِ تَعِفَةٌ أُخْرَى Then another group should come. لَمْ يُسَلُّوا And they haven't prayed yet. فَلْيُسَلُّوا And then now they should pray. They haven't yet performed their salah. Now they should pray their salah. And it's going to mention their weapons as well. Ma'aka, and then they should pray with you. Well, ya'khudu hidharahum wa aslihatuhum. So they should make their precautions and they should also hold their weapons. So what you have is Sayyidina Rasulullah remains as the Imam and different groups are rotating in to pray behind them. Ajeeb Manzar. Different groups of Mujahideen are rotating in to take turns in praying behind him while he remains as the Imam. Alright. In the books of fiqh, they've gone into extreme detail, which is way beyond a course like this, but extreme detail on exactly the methods of this. They call this Salat al-Khawf, the way that prayer will be offered in jama'ah in a state of fear of enemy attack, literally about the arrangements of roles, the alignment of roles, the rotating of roles, right, uh, and all these such things. I think I think maybe for this purpose, we should just simply just translate this here. What the kafaru? So then what you should do is that uh, the disbelievers wish that you should neglect your weapons, right? They want that you should become ghafil anaslitahum, that you should go uh, unaware of your weapons, wamti'atikum, and your stuff, which means literally your equipment, your military equipment, so that they may launch a decisive attack against you. alaykum, there's no harm on you, in kana bikum, adham min matarin, that if there is any... Uh, Harm that is following you due to severe rains, or you were sick, 
That in that case, what can you do? In that case, what you can do is you can lay down your arms. Alright? What does it mean? It's suggesting that, the suggestion, and this is mean you don't have this experience, but the suggestion is somehow that due to the rains, you wouldn't be able to keep your arms strapped on you. That the intense rain would make you have to unbuckle your belt and your scabbard and your sheath and all of that. I mean, you don't have, we don't know what these things are. Right? And another notion is that if you're ill, maybe because you're ill, you're weak, you may have been wounded in battle, you can no longer keep that strapped on you, so you also can put that down. There's no haraj on you. But otherwise, you should pray armed to the teeth. Because these people, because these people are so heartless and so lacking in honor that they have attacked and they can attack and could attack you even while you're praying. All right. Now, uh, sorry, إِنَّ اللَّهَ أَعَنْدَلَ الْكَافِرِينَ أَذَابَ مُحِينَ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has indeed prepared for unbelievers an immensely humiliating punishment. Obviously the rubbed here is for this type of activity that they are willing to attack believers when they are engaged in salah. فَإِذَا كَذَيْتُمُ الصَّلَاةِ Then when you have completed, completed and offered your salah, فَذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ قِيَامًا وَقُعُودًا وَعَلَى جُنُوبِكُمْ This is what our mashayik mentioned as بُكُوفِ الْقَلْبِ That when you finish your salah, and now you go back, you're outside of formal ibadah, right? You're done with prayer. And this ayah, it literally means when the mujahid is done with prayer and goes back to his jihad, he must do dhikrullah. Must continue doing dhikrullah along with doing the activity that he's doing. Qiyaman while standing, waku'udan while sitting, wa'ala jinubikum while lying down. And the umumi man of this ayah, general meaning is that whenever a person has completed their salah, and they go back into the workplace, they go back into the university, they go back into the market, they go back to the family gathering, they go back into the wedding hall, after having taken the break, right? Whenever they go back, they should always remember Allah. They should continually remember Allah. And many people don't understand this. They think that worship is confined to salah alone. Remembrance to Allah subhanahu wa is confined to worship alone. Then Muslims are only supposed to remember Allah ta'ala five times a day for five minutes. And the rest of the time they should be fully engaged in their worldly occupations. So Allah subhanahu wa is saying in Quran that when you're finished with your salah, you should still, your heart should still be remembering Allah subhanahu wa in the, now, here comes the commandment of salah. In the Satakanat al Mu'minina Kitab al Mukuta, that know that indeed the salah has been made, prescribed, and mandatory on the believers, Mukutan, at set and prescribed times. This is an ayah that is suggesting that you must do ada as opposed to qada, that you must pray at particular times. And for Hanafi fiqh, because here Allah subhanahu wa right after mentioning the issue of rain, and traveling, and all of that, and illness, says that it's at prescribed times, so they take it as an ashara that Allah is not saying that you can combine prayers at the same time due to any of these illnesses, or any of these others, any of these reasons, because right after mention of these reasons, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reinforced that prayer has been mandated at prescribed times. Alright? وَلَا تَحِنُوا And do not lose courage, do not slacken, do not weaken. In the pursuit of your enemy. And that means that when you are fighting the unjust aggressor and you take the break for salah, when you come out of that salah, you should get right back into the thick of it. Allah Akbar. It's Allah SWT. Right? إِن تَكُونُوا تَعْلَمُونَ فَإِنَّهُمْ يَعْلَمُونَ كَمَا تَعْلَمُونَ Alright, if you were suffering, 
then they are also suffering. If you are hurting, smarting from that battle, if you are weary and tiring from that battle, then they are also weary and tired from that battle in the same way that you are tiring from that battle. But tarjuna min Allah. And you should have hopes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have hopes in Allah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ma la yarjun. They don't have any hopes from Allah. So it's an emotional thing as well. This I explained to you. Many times physical activity is based on emotions. So you're both physically weary. But you will triumph. Why? Because you will be given an emotional, spiritual surge that will revitalize and re-energize you physically. What is the source of that emotional, spiritual surge? Your, your hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your yearning with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And them, ma la yarjun. They don't have that. They don't have that. مَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا And indeed Allah subhanahu is all-knowing, is all-wise. And you will feel that as well inshallah in Ramadan. That what makes a person st- endure this physical hardship of staying away from food and drink, it's an emotional feeling for Allah subhanahu So one of the features of Ramadan is actually that Allah subhanahu wants us to develop in ourselves through this practice over 29 and 30 days, that feeling. It's about the feelings for Allah subhanahu and if by 30 days you stay away from food and drink and lawful relations if you're married, out of that feeling, then by the end of that month you have developed and stored up inside yourself a massive amount of feelings for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those feelings for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will enable you to supersede your physical self and specifically will enable you to supersede your nafs when your nafs wants you due to its carnal or otherwise pleasures, illicit pleasures, tries to get you to do something that is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you need feelings. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says elsewhere in the Quran. مَنْ خَافَ مَقَامَ رَبِّهِ وَنَهَا النَّفْسَ عَنَ الْحَوَىٰ It's that person who has the feeling of fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And also has the feeling in which they give Allah ta'ala a maqam, an azmat, a stature. That person can نَهَا النَّفْسَ عَنَ الْحَوَىٰ That person is able to stop their nafs from desires. So the purpose of fasting in the month of Ramadan is to give us those feelings. And this is what even Western neuroscientists say, they call it mind over matter. And then they try to analyze and they hook up things to a person. And so they said there's something called adrenaline. And a person gets an adrenaline rush, right? And the sprinter gets an adrenaline rush because he's got the competitive edge in him. That's why we have no problem with that. Allah Ta'ala may work physiologically, but the physiology is still tabi to the emotions. Where, why does that person get the adrenaline rush? It's an emotion. So Allah Ta'ala is trying to give us spiritual emotions. Right? So you're supposed to feel the blaze and the heat and the warmth of taqwa and muhabbat ilahi and ishq rasul sallallahu That is what Ramadan is all about. Alright. So here Allah Ta'ala is talking about another, that they will get a type of adrenaline rush because they have this yearning and hope from Allah Inna anzalna ilaykal kitaba bil That indeed Nabi Akrim Sassam we have sent down upon you the Quran Akrim bil with absolute truth and veracity as the true book. Litahkuma so that you may decide and you may monitor bainan nas that you may decide bainan nas between all of humanity. Bima Allah by means of that which Allah subhanahu wa will show you. Now here is an ishara again to another type of wahi. So the kitab is one thing. Now Nabi Karim Sallallahu is going to decide on manners in which humanity disagrees based on what? Now the decision is Bima Allah. Based on literally means what Allah subhanahu wa will show you. It was what Allah Ta'ala has shown you, it means that some 
other wahi that Allah Ta'ala is going to give you, and by means of that other wahi, you will be able to decide on Qur'an, that other wahi that is called hadith and sunnah. وَلَا تَكُنْ لِلْخَائِنِينَ خَسِيمًا And you should not be for those people who do khiyana. Khiyana means who commit treachery, betrayal, disloyalty. So you should not be for them khasima. You should not advocate their cause. You should not defend them. You should not plead for them. Allah, And you should seek the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. kana rahima. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving, all merciful. Wala tujadil. And you should not engage in argumentation, disputation. You should not engage in argument and disputation amongst us about those people who have done khiyana with their own selves. It means they have deluded themselves. They have engaged in self-delusion, self-deception. So I told this now maybe the second or third place. La Yuhibbu is coming. That indeed Allah SWT does not love each and every such person. Khawan. Khawan is intense form of khain. Khain is the person who betrays the trust, who is disloyal, commits treachery. Khawan means a super, uh, super traitor, super disloyalty. Right? Athim. Again, athim means sinner. Just like alim means a person who has knowledge. And alim means a person who has extreme knowledge. So it's used for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here, athim means intense sinner. So the intensely treacherous one and the intensely sinning one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not love such a person. يَسْتَغْفُونَ مِنَ النَّاسِ وَلَا يَسْتَغْفُونَ مِنَ اللَّهِ So Allah SWT is saying here that they try to hide from the people. They try to hide this. Right? They try to make it khafi. يَسْتَغْفُونَ They try to make it khafi from humanity what their treachery. Their intense treachery and sin, they try to conceal it from humanity. But they can't hide it from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala knows everything. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with them. And we mentioned through them when they conspire in the nights. That which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not pleased with. That which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not pleased with min al from it literally means their statements, but it can mean also their schemes and their plans and their discussions and their conniving. Bakanallahu bima ya'maluna mohita and Allah subhanahu is all encompassing, is all aware and his awareness and knowledge encompasses and encloses and surrounds each and everything that they do. So one thing is Allah said that he knows what you do. One thing is Allah said that my knowledge encompasses and circles surrounds what you do. So surrounds everything that they do. Ha antum haulai ja daltum anhum fil hayatid dunya famay yujadilullah anhum yomal kiyamati amman yakunu alayhim wakila. Here Allah Spanta saying Quran that they that they should be warned. Ha antum is it sort of we call kalimatutan bi that indeed these very people who jadaltum who are engaging in argumentation, disputation with you that they should be warned. They should hear a warning from Allah subhanahu wa Right? And what is it that they're doing? They're pleading with you fil hayatid dunya. They're disputing and pleading with you concerning the life of this world. Ja daltum anhum that you 
are pleading with them concerning the life of this world. فَمَنْ يُجَادِلُ اللَّهَ And that person whom confronts or tries to dispute Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or plead Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anum concerning them on the Day of Judgment, أَمَّنْ يَكُونُ عَلَيْهِمْ وَكِيلًا And from where will there be any type of wakil for them? From where will there be any caretaker or person who will argue their case? Right? So be warned that these are the very people in whose defense you plead in the worldly life, but there will be no person who will plead for them on the Day of Judgment. فَمَنْ whom so who will there be who will plead and argue their cause in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on that Day of Judgment? And there will be no person who will be a wakil for them. And each and every person who commits a sin or an evil deed. Or harms their own self who deludes and deceives their own self. And then after that they seek the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed, they will find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all forgiving and all merciful. So this is again Surah An-Nasa, Surah number 4, verse 110. This is also an ayah that we should know and we should use. And any time we commit a sin, we should recite this ayah. There are those ayat in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically talks about a person who commits a sin and then turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those are the ayat that we should recite when we commit a sin. Many times people want and they want things to recite to ward off evil. What we need more is to things to recite when we ourselves do evil, how to ward off the evil from ourselves that we did to our own selves. So this is an ayah for that. That person who did any evil, any sin, or harmed or oppressed or was unjust, deceived, deluded their own self. And then after that, then they sought the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What will they find immediately? They will immediately find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be all forgiving, all merciful. Very simple. Simple recipe, simple formula, simple strategy that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. وَمَنْ يَكْتَسِبْ إِثْمًا فَإِنَّمَا يَكْسِبُهُ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ And whomsoever perpetrates a sin... Indeed, they have committed that sin against their own self, against the benefit of their own self. وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا hakima. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing, all-wise. Here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is responding to perhaps something that the atheist may come up with, that, you know, well, if I did a sin, so what? Right? Was it Allah ta'ala harmed if I do the sin? Allah ta'ala ko kya nuksan minne pucha? Right? Why is Allah ta'ala concerned? Why does Allah ta'ala upset? Why does Allah want me not to do this? Why does Allah Ta'ala think I should seek forgiveness? So it's making it clear. That whomsoever commits any sin, they did it for their own harm. They've slandered and hurt and earned it on their own self. They can't hurt Allah Ta'ala anyway. It's to their own detriment. Not to the detriment of Allah Ta'ala. To their own detriment. hakima. But Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. وَمَنْ يَقْسِمْ خَتِيَةً And that person who, again, right, you can say who commits now khatiyatan, we did this before, it comes from khata error, it means a minor sin, or ithman, or a major sin. You can understand that that person who commits a slip or a fault, or ithman who perpetrates a sin. ثُمَّ يَرْمِ بِهِ بَرِيْأَنْ فَكَدِ اِحْتَمَلَ بُحْتَانَ وَإِثْمًا مُبِينًا Okay. That person who makes a slip or commits a major sin, and then what did they do? 
yarmi bihi so they attribute that sin it can mean blame also but attribute that sin bari on somebody who is innocent of that sin so they blame their friend for doing it no no it was he got me to do it always oh, peer pressure they convinced me to do it right me media made me do it the screen made me do it they blame it to somebody who is actually innocent of doing it you're the perpetrator right perpetrator criminal was you but you attributed it was me but we attributed it to somebody else so what happens when the person does that in other words it means they're not confessing that they were guilty so there's no mention of istighfar here then right they're not going to ask allah taala for forgiveness for sin unless they accept that they were the reason they did sin if they try to blame it on somebody else then they're not going to do that so now what does it mean fakadih tamala buhtanan so he has taken such a person has taken up on themselves as dan hamal has taken up a burden on themselves buhtanan first of all they slandered that person now slandered that person because they're actually the ones who are guilty wa ithmam mubina and now they have an open manifest clear sin walaula fadlullahi alayka wa rahmatuhu and if it was not for the fazl of allah subhanahu upon you and the mercy of allah subhanahu upon you so here actually alayka before was alaykum right so i translated that once as sahaba once as all of humanity here it's alayka means it also some if it was not for the fazl of allah subhanahu on you sayna rasulullah if it was not for the mercy of allah subhanahu on you sayna rasulullah what would have happened lahammat ta'ifatun minhum that a party of them a group of them would have resolved and would have intended ayyudhilluka that they would try to misguide you they would try to misguide you وَمَا يُذِلُّونَ إِلَّا أَنفُسَهُمْ But they did not misguide anyone other than their own selves, their own persons. وَمَا يُذِلُّونَكَ مِنْ شَيْءٍ And they have not harmed you in any way whatsoever. شَيْءٍ again to mean, they have not harmed you in any way whatsoever. وَنْزَلَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابِ And Allah SWT sent upon you the Qur'an, وَالْحِكْمَةَ And the teachings of sunnah and teachings of wisdom. وَأَلَّمَكَ مَا لَمْ تَكُنْ تَعْلَمْ And then he taught you that which you did not know. وَكَانَ فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكَ أَذِيمًا And indeed, Allah Subhanahu fazl upon you has been azim, has been tremendous and great. لَا خَيْرَ فِي كَثِيرٍ مِّن نَجْوَاهُمْ إِلَّا مَنْ أَمَرَ بِصَدَقَةٍ أَوْ مَعْرُوفٍ أَوْ إِسْلَاهِمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ وَمَنْ يَفْعَلْ ذَلِكَ وَمَنْ يَفْنَلْ ذَلَكَ بْتَغَاءَ مَرْضَاتِ اللَّهِ فَسَوْفَ نُؤْتِيهِ أَجْرًا أَذِيمًا لَا خَيْرَ فِي كَثِيرٍ مِّن نَجْوَاهُمْ That there is no good in most of najwa means there, it's the same thing similar to the secret consultations, they're plotting, they're conniving, their secret hopes and aspirations. There is no khair, there will be no fruition, no good in it, no fruition will come of it. إِلَّا However, that person who amara who enjoins on paying charity, o ma'ruf or who enjoins upon engaging in good and proper and noble behavior, o islahim nas, or who enjoins people to reconcile between one another, whoever will do this, mayyaf adalika, whoever will do this, ibtigham marzatillahi, for the sake of the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then surely soon Allah ta'ala says we will grant him and gift him and bestow upon him a tremendous reward. So this is the key word here. We've done this before. The people who do acts of good deeds, not for the sake of Allah, they won't get a reward from Allah. Sometimes I give you this example that when you stay in the night in a hotel room and the maid, she comes in the morning and makes your bed. She wasn't doing it to earn your pleasure. That was her job. 
So when you walk, when you back, go back to the hotel room after teaching, after your conference, and you see the bed is made, you don't get all happy. You don't get the warm fuzzies. That's what we call it. You don't get the warm fuzzies because she didn't do it for you. But if your daughter makes your bed or your son makes your bed or somebody does some khidmat of you for you, out of their love for you, then when you see that, then you get the warm fuzzies. So just like that, when the disbelievers show up on the Day of Judgment, and especially the atheists, and they had done things, but they hadn't done acts of charity for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so you can put it in such a way that Allah ta'ala is not going to get the warm fuzzies when He sees them, and He's not going to send down His mercy and blessings upon them. Because they didn't do it for Him. They didn't even believe in Him. Right? They didn't even believe in Him. So the condition here is then, وَمَنْ يَفْأَذَلَكَ إِبْتِغَاءَ مَرْذَاتِ اللَّهِ and here you see a nukta here, madhat is plural. Seeking the pleasures of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Seeking the manifold, multiple, multifaceted pleasures of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. وَمَنْ يُشَاقِكَ الرَّسُولَ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ الْهُدَى وَيَتَّبِعْ غَيْرَ سَبِيلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ نُوَلِّهِ مَا تُوَلَّى وَنُسْلِهِ جَهَنَّمْ Okay, now that person, each and every such person, Yushaqik, it meant originally faction, it means who factionally opposes the Prophet ﷺ. Even after they know righteous guidance. Literally means even after guidance was made manifestly clear to them. Right? And they follow a path other than the path of the believers. So here there's a nukta here, by the way, that our Ustaz al-Sumasifra mentions, Sabil al-Mu'mineen. Allah Ta'ala is mentioning that the Mu'mineen have a Sabil, that the Mu'mineen have a particular way that they are on, right? And the Ahl sunnah wal Jama'ah believe that this Sabil al-Mu'mineen refers to that way. But the point is to tell you that Sabil al-Mu'mineen, so we had Sirat al-Mustaqeen, then we had Salat al-Ladina Anamta alayhim. And those of you who have been here every day, right? And who was that group? Nabeen, Siddiqeen, Shuhada, and Salihin. But now you have yet another path being mentioned. And that path is something that should be followed because you're about to see the person who doesn't follow it is going to get a chastisement, right? So whose path is that? Sabid al-Mu'mineen. And so many, the Athasunam al-Jamaat's view is why they say that you should follow the majority. You should follow the majority. So for example, if there's a case, let's say the Hanafis, Malikis, Hashafis and Hanbalis all agree on something. So they're the Sabil al-Mu'mini. And there's a group that has a different view. So we will entitle that person who did ijtihad to follow that view, but it's not qabla ittiba. You have to understand this is a very interesting thing in fiqh. One is something that a person has a view. One is that, is that view worthy of being followed by others? So if there's an alim al-deen, let's say a great scholar in the past, let's say 7th, 8th century, and he comes up with a view, then we will say, fine, as far as his own amal is concerned, his view is a hujjah on him. But if his view is what an Arabic call tafarrud, tafarrud means that it's an isolated opinion. It's their unique opinion. It's their solitary position. It's outside and goes against the vast majority so we will say that their position cannot be called Sabil al-Mu'mineen. So for example, Taraweeh, Taraweeh prayers according to all of the Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Hanbali, ulama has always been 20, throughout 1400 plus years. 
There have been an isolated few, we're talking point zero 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 one percent of jurists who took the understanding that it should be eight. So that position, if that was their understanding, they should follow it. We have no problem with that. We're not going to say anything about that. But is it something that a non-scholar who doesn't, who didn't come to it on the basis of their own scholarly investigation, can they follow it? Is it kabul ittiba? We'll say no. What you're supposed to do ittiba of is the sabil al-mu'mini. So this is the way that you have pluralism and tolerance and you still have majority. Right? Tolerance because we're perfectly fine. If that scholar prays eight and goes, we still love him. And we say he did the right thing because he is responsible to follow the position that he came up to on the basis of his own independent scholarly research. But you can't do ittiba of him. And even if he gives you a five minute speech, doesn't mean you can do ittiba of him. Right? It has to be your own ittihad. Whose ijtihad is worthy of following Sabil al-Mu'mineen, that path that is the path of the plurality, majority, the masses of the mu'min. So sometimes we have even in madrasas in Pakistan, there's a very big shekel of these, I don't know if I should take his name. Fair. He's in India, right? If anybody else in the world has ever listened to this, they will know who he is. You guys don't know these things. So he has his tafarudat. He's got one or two views that are like his own. Not his own that he's never, nobody else, but he has taken certain isolated opinions of past scholars. And we all like, I personally love him. Right? But I don't follow him in those positions. Right? Because that's his position. That's his shan. That's his, that's his greatness and majesty as a scholar. But if it's a tafarud, if it's not sabil al-mu'mineen, I can't follow that. It's not qabli ittiba. It's qabli amal for him, but it's not qabli ittiba for ghayr. This is the understanding of the fuqaha of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. Right? Sometimes you will also have, for example, in the Supreme Court of the United States, an individual judge writes their own opinion. But what's the opinion that will be followed and made the law of the land, the majority opinion? Right? So qabli ittiba is the majority opinion of the court. The other judges are entitled to write a minority opinion. Sometimes it's 8-1, sometimes it's 5-4. But even if it's 5-4, the four Supreme Court justices in the United States that write, sometimes jointly and also in America, each one of them, if they feel they had their own reasons. Sometimes you can have four dissenting in terms of the written opinion. Sometimes there are four. Each one of them will write it separately. But it's not qabli ittiba. No citizen will follow that. Because the citizen is going to follow the majority opinion. So that's how it works in matters of law. Our shared deal is nodding. Right? Makil Saab, Tazdeek Kare Hemare. Alright. Shehr Dil, Nambi Bara. Ghazab Kanami. Huh? Allah Akbar. I'm the share of his Dil. Alright. So, this is Sabil al Mu'mineen. Alright. So, here Allah SWT was saying that that person who follows غَيْرَ سَبِيلُ الْمُؤْمِنَةِ I'm not trying to say, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that the person who does this, this eye applies to them. This eye is not talking about believers in any way. Right? This eye is not talking about believers in any way. That person who doesn't follow the path of the mu'mini. So what is Allah subhanahu wa saying about that person? Here Allah ta'ala means in terms of iman. It's talking about those people who factionally oppose the Prophet ﷺ and does not follow the way of the believers. نَوَلَّهِ مَا Allah. We shall allow him to do. We will let him, we will spurn him on that which he is spurning. We will 
let him do that which he wishes to do. وَنُسْلِهِ جَهَنَّمْ And then we will enter in him into the fire of Jahannam. وَسَاءَتْ مَسِيرٌ And indeed Jahannam is the worst of places to be taken to, the worst of places to end up in. إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِي That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forgive that any partners associated with him. وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلَكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءَ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can forgive anything other than that, anything less than that to whomsoever he wishes. وَمَنْ يُشْرِكْ بِاللَّهِ فَكَنْ ذَلَّ ذَلَالًا بَيْدًا And that person who is Christ's partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have gone astray in an extreme wide way of going astray. They have gone wide astray from the path. إِنْ يَدْعُونَ مِنْ دُونِهِ إِلَّا إِنَاثًا and then what is Spantal saying? Yaduna Minduni means these people make dua. They make dua to some being or entity or some idols. Other than Allah Spanta Illa Inatha literally means feminine. What happened here, the Mushrikin in Makkumakarama, they used to believe that their idols were feminine. They used to believe that their idols were feminine. This Lat and Manat and they used to give feminine names to them and so in terms of gender. Right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that being who transcends gender, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name, he is neither male or female. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is genderless. He transcends such a concept that gender would be attributed to him. Alright? Ma'in illa shaitanam marida. And indeed, they think they're praying to their feminine idols, but they are not making dua to anything other than shaitan. And marid here means marid, means inside, rebellious, treachery, abominable. Uh, this is how you would transit it. That they're not praying to any entity except for to shaitan the rebellious. La'anahullahu. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast him out of his mercy. So how did shaitan respond? Allahu Akbar. Jeep Iblis. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast him out of his mercy, he shot back. Makal and he shot back and Iblis said, min ibadik. I'm going to take Allah. He's addressing Allah. He's looking out on the eye, so to speak, right? And he says to Allah, I'm going to take man ibadik from your ibad. You know who I'm going to attack? I'm not going to go attack the atheists. I'm not going to go attack the agnostics. I'm not going to attack the non-worshipping Muslims. Who am I going to attack ibadik? Those of your mu'mineen who have accepted to do your ibadah, they worship you, and who are your ibad, who view themselves as your servants and slaves. What am I going to do with them? So he says that I'm going to take a naseeb from them. Naseeb mafruza, I'm going to take my share from them. Allahu Akbar, Ajeeb. I'm going to go to the ibad and may unmissi kuch I'm going to deviate some of them. Really bold creature this Iblis. Amazing how he talks to Allah SWT. Huh? Can you imagine any creature talking like this? This is why he's completely gone. <laughs> completely gone outside the mercy of Allah SWT. So we should think if anyone makes it to a level that they're ibadah. This is why you should also understand sometimes. Right? Sometimes I find that sometimes the non-practicing Muslims in this country are extremely critical when a practicing Muslim makes any flaw. So they should understand from this ayah that well, shaitan's, all shaitan's effort is on him. All shaitan's effort is on that namazi guy. <laughs> That's what the Quran is saying. The many non-namazis, and they have lots of character flaws in them as well. Just ask their wives. But outwardly, they think that they're a pure character and the namazi guy makes one character slip. Charge up there. Itna namaz par ne ka 
राइट एक फायदा था जहां से बच के एक फायदा मैं बहुत फायदे बयान कर सकता हूं राइट इतने नमाज पढ़ने के बहुत से फायदे थे राइट इफ नथिंग एल्स इफ द पर्सन डेन प्रेस अलाड बी इवन वर्स कैरेक्टर देन यू सीम नाउ इट्स लाइक मी थिंग इमेजिन इफ आई टोल्ड द स्टूडेंट ऑफ माइंड हु गॉट अ सी दैट पढ़ने का क्या फायदा पढ़ता नहीं तो एफ मिलता राइट इफ आई क्रिटिक फॉर नॉट गेनिंग एन एफ इफ यू कम्स टू मी बी प्लस आई से वो इज द पॉइंट ऑफ स्टरिंग सिर्फ आई दिन से गन एन एफ राइट so don't look at the person doesn't you know have an a plus that's how you should look at yourself that's how you should look at yourself that's not how you should look at other people but this is also telling you that shaitan's special effort is going to be on those muslims who worship so if you see a muslim who worship who fall into something you should think that well oh shaitan that was his target shaitan ke nishana lag gaya main to itna gay guzra hu main to shaitan ka nishana banne ke bhi layak nahi hu अपने बारे में तो ये सोचना चाहिए मैं तो बाद में से नहीं हूं मैं तो उससे बहुत नहीं समझे राइट मुफ्त में उनके हिसाब में आ गया राइट सोटिंग Right, because we have that program, and some of you may need to go home and come back, or you may want to stay. You're welcome to stay, welcome to go, welcome to return, welcome to not return. Yeah, you have the option, right? So, what does Shaitan say? And really, it's also a devastating thing to say to Allah, right? I mean, imagine you said to somebody that I'm going to I'm going to deviate your sons, right? And again, I'm not saying that Allah's relationship with this ibad is father-son, but it's a nisbat, right? These are ibadullah. So Iblis is saying, I'm going to snatch away from your ibad. Can I talk like this? And then he says, Naseeba mafroor, my guaranteed share. <laughs> That's how he's talking. My apportioned, appointed, guaranteed, fixed share. Mena apne hissa, lena hai, lena hai. That's how he's talking to Allah SWT. Allah Akbar kamira, a'udhu billahi minna shaitan rajeem. Then he continues. And surely and certainly I will make them go astray. And surely and certainly I will instill false hopes in them. Make them think that they can sin and still be forgiven without seeking your forgiveness. I will put hopes in this world for them that they can earn and attain. I will put long hopes that they think this world will last forever and they will work for this world, this world, this hayat dunya as if they're going to live here forever. And then what I will do, I will command them. I will reach such a level of power over your ibad that I will be the amir. I will command them. Allah Akbar. فَلَوْ يُبَتِّكُنَّ أَذَانَ الْأَنْعَامِ And then what I will do is, they, this literally means that I will definitely make them cut the ears of animals. وَلَآمُرَنَّهُمْ فَلَوْ يُغَيِّرُنَّ خَلْقَ اللَّهِ And then I will command them further and then they will change. They will do تَغْيِير They will change the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This can mean many, many things, right? One is this can refer to physical defilement. It can also refer to spiritual defilement, changing the way Allah Ta'ala wants the creation to be. Alright? وَمَنْ يَتَّخِذِ الشَّيْطَانَ وَلِيَّمْ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ So Allah Ta'ala is now speaking in this third person statement. He, each and every such person who takes shaitan as a friend instead of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, 
فَكَانْ خَسِرَ خُسْرَانًا مُبِينًا That such a person has suffered an abominable loss. Such a person trading Allah for shaitan. <laughs> trading Allah for shaitan, that is complete loss. No profit, that is complete loss. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to say. يَئِدُهُمْ وَيُمَنِّيهِمْ And what does shaitan do? يَئِدُهُمْ He false promises. Literally means he makes promises to them. But they're false promises. They're lies. They're lies. But you him, and then he puts in them. He puts inside them long hopes. So sometimes we call tule amal, false hopes of this world. And know that shaitan does not. This is the false part that shaitan does not make any promises to them other than a hurur out of pure deception and treachery and lying. Ulaika ma'wahum jahannam. But such people who fall into the traps of shaitan, their eventual, des- their destination and the rest, their abode and dwelling place will be jahannam. Wala yajiduna anha mahita. And they will not find any escape therefrom. So this is a very scary ayah. Because it's talking about those ibad. Quran is establishing that there will be a group of ibadullah who will be distracted and deviated by shaitan, who will be given and fall to the deceptions of shaitan, who will succumb to the false promises of shaitan, who will be duped by the false hopes of shaitan, and what does Allah Ta'ala say about them in the end? So they went from ibadik to what? Ula'ika ma'wahum jahannam. Allahu Akbar Kameera. Al-Amanah al-Fatiz. Na'udhu billahi min ash-shaitan rajim Look at the evil of this individual, this being. So this is why historically, historically, the ibad, the worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always used to fear shaitan till the very end. Because they knew this ayah was written on their heart. They knew that they were a target. And they knew nasibam mafruda. And Allah ta'ala doesn't do anything to negate it. Allah ta'ala could have shot back and said, you will never be able to take away any of my ibad. Allah ta'ala doesn't say that. <laughs> Allah ta'ala talks about how they will be taken away. That's Allah ta'ala's guidance for us. That shaitan will take you away by false promises. Shaitan will take you away by giving you false hopes. Shaitan will take you away through delusion and deception. That's the hidayah that's in Quran. Allah has outlined to us. Just like if I give you the answers before the exam. So you know you have the answer key before the exam. So here Allah has given us the way that shaitan will do it. So that's the hidayah. But those ibad that somehow still get duped and deviated. Then they get turned away from the path. Some of them could be turned away so far. And that's why you, when you read all the stories of the early muhaddithin, mufassirin, fuqaha, awliyaullah, they used to be, they would ask Allah Ta'ala so much to save them from Jahannam, and used to cry out of the fear of Allah, you would think that they had lives of sin. You would think that they had led lives of sin, but they led lives of ilm and taqwa and amal and salah, but they were so scared of Allah Ta'ala nonetheless. Ajeeb. Allahu Akbar. So this is Quranic and son. Then so maybe I'll just add a little bit with you, a little bit more, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does, like I've told you, whenever He mentions Jahannam in a very way, especially when He mentions Jahannam in such a way, that the believers are scared that they will enter Jahannam through that route, He always, almost always follows it up with something like this, However, know that those who remain on Iman, and spend their life, on righteous acts includes worship and good deeds and kindness and all virtues. 
sanud khiluhum jannatin tajimin tahtihan anharu that indeed we will enter them and admit them into gardens under which rivers flow khalidina fiha abada and they will live therein forever once they're entered therein there will never be any exit shaitan and no other power will ever be able to reach them and to make them deviant or to make them distracted or to make them misguided wa'dallahi haqqa and the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the truth itself وَمَنْ أَصْدَكُ مِنَ اللَّهِ قِيلًا And who is there whose statement or who speaks as truly and as, as truly as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright, inshallah we'll stop over here and we'll let you out about at 5 o'clock today inshallah. And with the du'a, so here we are through Nisa Surah number 4 ending at verse number 122. that one Again, I repeat the announcement for those who may have come late. We have decided to give you a day off tomorrow. Give one day off tomorrow so that you may prepare for the month of Ramadan, that you may take care of any things that you have to take care of. And inshallah, we will resume on Monday. Uh, and I can also try to get some strength to go faster, right? So we will inshallah resume on Monday at 2 p.m. So starting on Monday, we will be following. August slash Ramadan timings, which will be 2 to 5 p.m., inshallah. Right? And on Monday, I will announce to you, inshallah, if we have made some arrangement for taraweeh here, and what exactly that would be. Ya Allah, Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, we ask that first and foremost you eliminate every fitna, every oppression, every injustice in this world. Ya Allah, we ask that you eliminate and eliminate the injustice and oppression of the unbelievers on the believers. Ya Allah, we ask that you eliminate any injustice and oppression of the believers on their fellow believers. Ya Allah, we ask you to eliminate any injustice and oppression that any believer may be doing to an unbeliever. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you make the whole world full of aman and salam, the whole world full of peace and tranquility. And Ya Allah, we ask that you enable the mu'mineen to be able to treat with peace and to engage in treaty with peace with those who disbelieve. And Ya Allah, so that we may live in our own mutual self mutually peaceful ways Ya Rabbi Kareem we ask that you enable and strengthen and increase the number of the Hakiki Mujahideen and make them triumph over the Batul Mujahideen and make them triumph over the unjust aggressors from the Kafirin Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem and Ya Allah we ask that you protect each and every one of us that you first admit each and every one of us to your Ibad that you make each and every one of us from, from amongst the Ibadullah that you enable us to pray our Salah regularly that you enable us in the upcoming month of Ramadan to fast each and every day. And Ya Allah, we too want to be ibtigha amardatillah. We want every single thing that we do in our life to be only and only for your sake, seeking your pleasures, seeking your reward, seeking your happiness, seeking your karam, seeking your fuzzle, seeking your rahmah. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you protect us from shaitan rajim. We ask that you protect us from the, his false promises, protect us from his insinuations and whispers. Protect us from long and false hopes.
hopes in this world. And Ya Allah, we ask that you make us triumph over our nafs. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you make us dominate our nafs. Ya Allah, we want to spend this month of Ramadan in which we feel the feelings of Quran. Put the feelings of Quran in our heart. Ya Rabbi, ya Rabbi Kareem, even if and surely many of us we may forget the words of Quran, we may even forget some of the translations and meanings of Quran. But Ya Allah, let us never ever forget the feelings of Quran. Let us live a life in which we live feeling each and every feeling that you wish us to feel. Ya Allah, Ya Rahman, Rabbana takambal minna innaka anta samiul alim, wa alayna innaka anta tawabur rahim, wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in, bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin.